Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, June 28th, 843-661-0937. How does it feel? Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Morning, Freehold. Okay, he's giving a thumbs up. Real, <laughs> Good morning, Kevin. He doesn't exchange pleasantries <laughs> I did. Like, like Chummy Cato did uh, every morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Ken. Okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. <laughs> any Any problem with the alligator? Do we have the alligator excavated um, or evacuated yet? I mean, I heard you guys talking yesterday about um, animal control that's made its way over to um. We, we have this very sensitive reptile, right? I mean, we have this alligator that is um. I mean, he, to to me, he's a native southerner, and he understands the degree of um northern aggression that has happened in the deep south. And I think the alligator has specifically identified um, Freehold as one of the um, one of the northern aggressors um, in the neighborhood. So have we removed the alligator? Because I heard you guys talking yesterday about DNR has been notified. Is it is an but is, is it a is it an aggressive alligator or is it a uh, kind of a racist alligator in in identifying northern aggressors and and getting them out of the way. Yeah, what is the latest? Yeah, what is the latest well, so on, the, think, on the alligator? I problem? think the really big one that was coming out and uh, bellowing like it, it, do you know what a bellow is? It sounds like a Harley mm-hmm. Davidson you know, starting up. Um, but I think Dave's friend took care of it. Um, I, but there is a little one in there. What do you mean, Dave's like friend took oh, care of it? Credit. Hey. <laughs> that was good. Dave. I just I just heard that that they'd been looking for it. That's what I'd heard. So you've got insiders at DNR? <laughs> I, I know people. Okay. I mean, of course you do. I mean, I know, I've never doubted that. That's why I'm always wanting to hang around with you to get, uh-huh. in, the, get in the click, get in the loop. Mm-hmm. So you know people that um that have the authority to remove an alligator if the alligator demonstrates aggressive tendencies, right? That's right. So this alligator has met that definition. Um, you've relayed uh, the point, or were they made aware by um, – nervous and afraid northern aggressors i I think i think people had must have reported it because i just inquired and they said yeah we've we've been looking for that one so i've been looking for that yeah it's good to have dave and kenneth sure and and let me tell you this if a good old boy in the dnrs if he's looking after him or looking for him i mean that gator's as good as done i mean rest assured with the good old boys uh, no, I don't think we'll kill the gator, will no, we? I think they re- relocate. Catch, release, lo- relocate. There you go. Um, 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, what does it feel like to live in a post-row America? I mean, I read a good bit yesterday on, uh, I don't know, from Vox Magazine. You can imagine what they had to say uh, to the Huffington Post. You can also imagine what they had to say to the National Review, to the Wall Street Journal, a lot of other places that I read. I didn't read you know, the the 5,000-word essay, but I read a lot of um, articles from a lot of, or by a lot of people who I put some degree of uh, credibility in, and it's very interesting. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's uh, there's been a, I mean, we've opened Pandora's box. For a long time, Republican office holders in America could say, I'm trying to do what I can in the name of protecting life, but I can't because Roe v. Wade is established law and we are a nation of laws. However bad the law may have been, we were indeed a nation of laws that are still a nation of laws. So today in red states, Republicans have the ability to determine what sort of legislation they want. Um, they've cooked up a lot of legislation in a lot of states um, with, with the interpret or understanding, Ray, of that we can do what we want to. We can always say the reason we can't uh, aggressively enforce these laws is because of Roe v. Wade. It gave them cover. 
And now we're going to find out exactly where the Republican Party stands on abortion. We know where the Democrats stand. There's not a lot of debate within the Democrats. I mean, they have been aggressively in pursuit of abortion under any circumstance or condition, what I call abortions of convenience. I mean, that's kind of where the Democrats are. There's a little bit of squabbling about late term. Um, There's a little bit of squabbling about if a woman is dilated or not. But they've established first semester, I mean, excuse for semester, first trimester, no problem. Second trimester, no problem. The third trimester, late term abortion uh, is something that has become a little bit controversial within the Democrats. Uh, but the Republicans are what we're going to be, I mean, I'm going to be keenly interested in, in, in what Republican legislators do uh, in these red states. Because once again, you don't have the scapegoat. You can't say the reason that I'm not able to do what we want to do in the in the uh, in protecting life is because we've got this federal legislation, uh, really this lawsuit um, that has been law of the land for what 53 or so years, um, and and that just opens up Pandora's box. I had a pastor called me yesterday who listens to the show periodically, um, and he said, "Okay, I want to better understand this." Um, there was a lot of preaching, quote unquote, in the pulpit Sunday celebrating life. America finally gets it. Uh, you know, turn away from your evil ways. There's a lot of religious overtones in this debate. And I told my pastor friend, I said, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a spiritual matter for many. It's a religious matter for many. But at the end of the day, Clarence Thomas did not decide whether he liked abortion or not. You know, um, what's the, the, the guy that wrote the majority opinion? His name escapes me early this morning, Alito. Um, Samuel Alito did not decide um, his moral and religious um, authorities over how he feels about about abortion. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, now they're saying Kavanaugh and Barrett misled. Um, I think Schumer and Susan Collins are saying that they were misled. I don't know how you mislead when you ask someone how they feel about a certain um, judgment the courts have made, and they say, well, I mean, that's, that's settled law. I mean, it is settled law until it revises the court. I mean, that's always the case under any circumstance. I mean, if they revisit a precedent, that precedent has established uh, a ruling that, that you have an opportunity to abide or change. I mean, you can go along with the precedent set by Roe v. Wade, or you can change it. So I don't think anybody was misled. The point I'm trying to make is this. It, it's kind of a, a convergence. There, there are a lot of things kicking in our world today. If you're a, a conservative Republican, um, you've, you've always been frustrated that Roe Ro v. Wade, and, and, and here's the point I'm trying to make. When my pastor calls me, he says, so this is not America coming to God. No, not at all. But I think the alignments are in our favor, that they're advantaged. I mean, I think, you know, the religious right, those who believe that God is the giver of life, life begins much earlier than Roe v. Wade or some of the Democrats. Yeah, but there's a religious overtone there. But the Supreme Court did not make a religious nor moral decision. I mean, they made a decision based on what is constitutional or not. And when it comes to um, something the the Constitution does not specifically address, it refers to the states. So, you know, Sunday morning in the pulpit, I mean, I got to believe there were pastors a little bit full of themselves. You know, we did it. I mean, we, 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 co- we were so committed to life for so long, the court kind of gave in because the court find, found its morality. They found its religious center. No, none of that happened. Or it shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, I'm um, thinking they got Alito. I mean, there, there's some Catholics on there. And you could argue that their Catholicism 
um, is ingrained in how they make legal determinations. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can't check your Christianity at the door. You can't check your Judaism at the door, your Buddhism, your Hinduism, your your Catholicism, whatever it is. I mean, you, you bring all that to the table with you. In other words, Amy Coney Barrett is a devout Catholic. That There's no way she stops being a devout Catholic the moment she has to decide or make a determination on what the court should do. Um, it's who she is. It's a part of her DNA. It's embedded in, in her psyche. Um, and, and we knew that going in. We knew that Amy Coney Barrett was very pro-life. We knew that she was a devout um, Catholic. So, but, but she didn't make a determination on behalf of the Catholic Church. She didn't make a determination uh, based on Catholicism and Christianity and, you know, what God would do, WWJD, the bracelets that a lot of people have. That was not her job. So when the pastors in the pulpit Saturday morning, excuse me, Sunday morning, or you know, preaching to the high heavens about, you know, America finally found its soul, America simply made a ruling consistent with the Constitution. And that's what my pastor is, not my pastor, but a pastor uh, that, that I have a, a previous relationship with uh, reached out to me yesterday said, hey, I want to better understand this now because I may have goofed up Saturday, Sunday. When I said, you know, that America found its moral underpinning and, you know, after after wandering around in the desert for 40 years, America found its soul. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there are religious overtones here and religious undertones for that matter. But what happened is, what had happened was, um, the, the, you know, the, the justices are constitutionalist. And they believe the Constitution is the bedrock, the fundamental bedrock of which we base our legal judgments upon and Roe v. Wade never had the constitutional underpinning to become law of the land. It was a bad ruling. The bad ruling stood for 53 years. Now we have a conservative court. Do we have a religious court? Don't know. I mean, we got a lot of you know justices that profess a faith in God, um, the, the Catholic faith in particular, when it comes to to the issue of life. But but the the justices of the court did not make a religious nor moral decision. I mean, it aligns with a lot of people's religion, a lot of people's morality, but the court simply made uh, a, a decision on what the Constitution says the federal government can and cannot do. And that's when he kind of like— As they should. Yeah, as they the should. That's their job. I mean, that's their job. If you don't like the Constitution, amend it. I mean, that's just, it's as simple as that. It ain't as simple as that. It's pretty complicated by design. But, um, but yeah, my, my pastor was— he was a little bit, not frustrated, but he was, uh, okay, so this is not America coming to God. No, not at all. I mean, the court would, would, would this has nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with spirituality. This is simply a ruling that says the states will decide. I'll give you an example. Um, a week or two or three from now, maybe some, when some of these uh, legislatures get back in session, you'll see more liberal abortion laws. You'll see more radical um, abortion, liberal abortion uh, laws in New York, California, um, some of the liberal states. I, I don't know what some of the moderate states will do. Um, what will South Carolina do? This is very interesting to me. Rick and Bob, um, Jordan, and Lowe will be with us Friday morning, or they're scheduled to be with us Friday morning. Kind of a long, it's kind of a weird weekend, July 4th weekend. They may or may not uh, be in town, but, you know, that's some of the um, some of the conversation I want to have with those three guys. Um, I don't want to say it this way, but I'm, I'm going to kind of lean it that way or steer it that way. Uh, you guys are all pro-life. You've, you know, you've established over the airways and in your campaigns that you're pro-life. But you've always had Roe v. Wade as something to blame for not being as pro-life as you'd like to be. Are we in South Carolina going to force a woman who got raped to have a kid, to have that baby? I mean, that, that's a complicated question, but I would imagine 
it's going to I mean it's going to be forced to be answered. I mean, what are the state's abortion laws going to be in regards to rape, incest, life of the mother? Let me give you another example. Uh, play this out in your head for a second. Let's say a woman accuses a man of rape, and she aborts the baby. She aborts the fetus because of the accusation of rape. Um, we find out after the fact she's lying. She was being dishonest. Never was raped. The the, the baby's already been aborted. I didn't say the um the the the, the tissue. I said the baby's already been aborted. The living, breathing human beings already be aborted. Um, is that lady guilty of violating abortion laws, or is she guilty of murder? Hmm. Okay, this gets complicated in a hurry, well, doesn't the it? The layers. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, wow. you better believe it. I mean, it's a new animal yeah. now that we don't have federal legislation, and the states that were intended to be the laboratories of public policy are now going to have that opportunity. But once again, a, a lady makes an accusation. Um, that, that some family member, she was involved in an incestuous relationship. A family member got her pregnant as a result of the exemption. I'm just I'm not saying hypothetically, let's say South Carolina lands at a place where abortions are um, illegal, except in cases of rape, incest, life of the mother. I mean, I'm just making that argument hypothetically. That that woman says to whomever, I guess law enforcement, you know, I was, um, I had sex with a family member. That's pretty sickening. But anyway, uh, incest is real. So in that incestuous relationship, I became pregnant. And they do an investigation. They abort the baby, do an investigation. Um, the investigation leads them to find out she was being dishonest. What happens to that woman? I, I just think that's so interesting. Um, but once again, I think those are the layers of complexity that we've unleashed on this debate that formerly were kind of squelched out because of the federal ruling. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Good morning. Guys, remember this. Now, some of these states, and a lot of them, already have, you know, they put these rules in place already, but a lot of what the rules say is that they're not going to go after the doctor in that case. They're going to go after, or the mother, they're going to go after the doctor that's performing the abortion. And, and again, I don't know the ins and outs, but I will say this, okay? They can talk about Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett all they want to. They just put a woman up in front of Congress that said she didn't know what a woman was. Okay? Talk about what you want to about them saying that it's settled law or whatever. You guys put somebody up there that don't know the difference between a man and a woman. My six-year-old grandson knows. So don't go telling me that... that uh, that Barrett and Kavanaugh lied during their hearings or whatever, confirmation hearings. They know dang good and well that that woman just sat there and lied all over them, and they accepted it because it fits their agenda. Now, point number two that I'm going to make here is that uh, they are losing their minds because they can't kill little bitty babies. They talk about how draconian that we are about, you know, uh, rape, incest, life of the mother. They talk about how draconian we are about these things. Well, you know what? You guys came up with partial birth abortion. You get a baby out of the birth canal far enough and you stick a knife in its head. What the hell are you talking about to me about draconian measures? You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. But but the practical reality is there there's going to be a legislative process. I mean, the, the Republicans who wanted this overturned now have the responsibility of legislating. 
And once again, what does that legislation look like? Is is the General Assembly in South Carolina going to force a woman who has been raped? Once again, we had this debate yesterday, and, and I'll maintain, I mean, I, I believe this with every fiber of my being. The, the child that is conceived, the conception that leads to a fetus, that leads to a baby, is no less life because the woman was raped or in an incestuous relationship. It, it's no less life than in a consenting relationship, than in the normal way uh, a man and a woman to start a family. Um, this life is life. That life is life. But but are we going to, in South Carolina, because look, Montana will do what Montana does. New Jersey will do what New Jersey does. California will do what California does. Um, South Carolinians will be very interested in what the South Carolina General Assembly adopts as law of the land when it comes to abortion. And the point I'm trying to make is, are we or are we not going to adopt some of the Hyde Amendment? Maybe it's a modified Hyde Amendment. What is the Hyde Amendment? That is rape, incest, life of the mother. What about health of the mother? I mean, where's the gray there? Where does health of the mother become life of the mother? Th- these are debates that I think warrant serious consideration, and our, our legislative body will be responsible for developing policy that guides us through this new uh, post-Roe America. Um, every General Assembly across the country will have that responsibility. And I, I just think I'm going to be very interested in watching this process take place. Once again, um, the life derived as a result of rape is no less of a life than one in a consensual sexual relationship. But humanistically, we got to agree there's some difference there. I want to watch the General Assembly and, and politicians all over the country sort and wade through um, that confusion because, once again, um, there is no scapegoat. There is no federal legislation or federal ruling. There you go, federal ruling that says, you know, you can't do this and you got to do that. I mean, Dobbs was what? I mean, it was a state law that made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. What is South Carolina law? What is the South Carolina will now have the final say on abortion legislation. What will it look like? I find that to be very, very riveting. Take a break. We'll be back. In just a minute. 843-661-0937. Tuesday morning, programming note, we're on the air today. Tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, not on the air all week next week. From what I've gathered, um, the Rev and Freehold are deeply involved in finding, searching, plundering around um, the abundance of show material we have, and they just can't find anything that qualifies as the best of. So in traditional sense, it is the best we could do of Wake Up Carolina for one week. But I think it's six to nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Next week, that's right. Um, you'll get you know the full dose of Glenn Beck and the conspiracy theories. i got to give Beck credit. I mean, I, I think more of him today than I ever have. Uh, he still cries too much, and he still you know gives these emotional pleas too much. But, but the guy in this um, great reset and these conspiracy theories, he's been right more than he's been wrong. I wish he'd stop crying as much and making these emotional pleas um, quite as much. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, we we talk all the time about rape and incest and all that. That's why they made the morning after pill. That should be the first thing they take if they were forced on a rape. That way you don't have conception. So... That should be the first thing they do. Where do you get That's that pill on Sunday morning, Joe, at 9 o'clock? Well, you got up to three days. You got three days. Okay. So it's not really the morning okay. after pill. 
Well, it's, it only works within five days, but they say optimum is three. But if, if someone was, was raped and they go to the police, I'm sure they have them in the crisis centers to where they take that. Now, if they don't report the rape, then that's a different story. But you have to draw the line somewhere. Because the life is a life. That child had nothing to do with with the rape. It's still a child of God. And that's all I'm saying is, you know, if you were raped, then you go report it. If you had incest, you go report it and, and let the consequences fall where they may. You know, it's it's mighty funny. We went along forever. You know, we've been praying about stopping this and stopping this and and, and Trump out of twenty four candidates gets voted in and he happens to get three justices. And you think that's a coincidence. You know, God put Martin Luther King, who was a very flawed man in the position he was in, to change the civil rights in this country. He uses people that aren't perfect because sometimes when he calls people, they say, no, I I, I don't want to do that. So is it a religious upstart in in America? I think so. You know, it was 62% at one time. Now it's back to 82% who believe in God. So I still have hope for this country. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. You hear the complication, though. Uh, The Mayo Clinic, you would agree that's a fairly um, legitimate place to go get medical um, news. So here's the Mayo Clinic. You ready? Conception, when the egg is fertilized by the sperm, can take place as soon as three minutes after sex, or it may take up to five days. Implantation with the fertilized egg attaches to the uterine wall occurs five to 10 days after fertilization, which means it can happen anywhere from five to 15 days after you had sex. Um, as a member of the General Assembly, did you sign up for that? You know, well, where do you go find your documentation? Joe, Joe and I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that life and a rape, incest life of the mother is no less a life. It's no diminished. I mean, there is no diminished value to God in that. But here are the complications that I think we're going to have to to sort through. Now, now what I'd like for us not to do is to make this completely and totally an argument of, um, you know, the the crassness of someone. uh, In other words, if someone got raped, if if a female gets raped and she, let's say we've got a law. I mean, there's some laws in uh, in America. South Carolina may be the case um, where rape, incest, life of the mother does not give you the right to have an abortion adoption agencies and crisis centers and and people like alexa newman are there to help that lady who got raped um that's going to be are we going to run for office as the party who says to females despite you being raped you've got to carry that baby to term and and that baby will be put up for adoption at some point is that the role of government uh it, it gets complicated guys it's going to get extremely complicated and it was less complicated when roe v wade was kind of the crutch we stood on um, general assemblies all over this nation are going to have to make very, very consequential decisions that are going to become unbelievably controversial. And it's going to take a degree of thoughtfulness and, and, and God, the complexities of the matter are going to have to be, it's just, it's a new day in America. 
And when we pass this responsibility along the general to the state governments, um, you're going to get decisions that 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 you got You got to think through these things. Once again, it, I'm not saying that I'm for rape incest, life of the mother being an exemption. Uh, once again, I want to gather information, gather data. I try to put myself in that position last night, Rev. I try to say, okay, I'm a House member. I'm a senator. I'm Rick and Bob Jordan or Lowe. And I've got to reevaluate the abortion laws in South Carolina because Roe v. Wade is no longer the guiding light, so to speak. You know, it doesn't dictate the terms and conditions of what we're allowed to do. Trigger laws and all these other sorts of things. There are a lot of political terminology that means um, I've got an out. Well, now you don't have an out. Constitutionalists believe that state governments deserved to make this decision. Uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade restores that power to the states. Here we go. Here we go. I mean, state governments are now going to have uh, the, the ability to make unbelievably important decisions about when life begins and, and when a woman should be allowed or not to have an abortion. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Now it's back. I just can't stand when he goes into a he's talking about God. And next thing you know, he's trying to sell me my slippers. But. Um, I was reading this morning that there's a heartbeat bill or something that they're that they wrote up. Mm-hmm. Um, if they detect a heartbeat, um, can't have an abortion up until they can detect a heartbeat. And then there was um, rape and incest uh, clauses in there um, up to 20 weeks or something like that. Um, that's what I was reading this morning. I don't know when that's going to. That's what you guys are talking about. If that's what you're going to bring in here, you guys. Um, I want to know who these people are that are getting, they're working on their, like, second abortion. I can kind of understand the first one. You know, things happen, make bad decisions, and you make another bad decision. But who are these people working on their second abortion? Why don't they just sterilize them after that point? And I'll take that off here. Thank you, Steve. I mean, I I don't have, I mean, I, I don't get conflicted in, in the terminology, abortion of convenience. And that's the majority of abortions. It'll be very interesting. I said yesterday, let's see how many um, women health centers go out of business because abortion has become, the, the abortion laws in said states are becoming uniquely different. But they said they, you know, the majority of their business was not abortion. They didn't do much abortion business. Um, let's find out in some of these states, the abortion clinics, and that's what they are, their abortion clinics, um, how many of those go away? because we're changing the business model. The point I want to make, guys, and, and stick with me for a second, um, the onerous, the burden, the responsibility is now where? Where we've always wanted it, in these states. Um, what is the final version of the South Carolina abortion laws going to look like? I mean, I, you know, we got a heartbeat bill, we got triggers, we got all these other sorts of things. Um, a state law was the impetus to overturning Roe v. Wade. Um the Dodd case, but that's a state law. That's a challenge that made its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So now you've kind of cleared the deck, and the states have, um, I mean, the states can actually adopt what they've had in place, uh, that they can, you know, readdress or, or revisit some of these existing laws. That's going to be very interesting to me. Um, when is a state pro-life and when is a state pro-choice? I mean, there would be a gradual sliding scale. You know, um, no abortion under any circumstance. I mean, there's no doubt that is a a pro-life legislator. 
uh, abortion under any circumstance. That would be a pro-choice or pro-abortion General Assembly. Um, where is kind of the, uh, it's the old analogy I use with working out. I mean, a skinny man and a strong man. A skinny man ain't going to be so strong. A strong man ain't going to be so skinny. Somewhere the two meet, and that's where you get fit. So, so where is pro-life uh, kind of merge into pro-choice? That there, There's a sliding scale here. Let's say, name a moderate state. Let's say Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania would be a good example here. Ohio would be another. Um, there are enough Democrats and Republicans in office at Pencil- in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, is Pennsylvania or Ohio going to be pro-choice, pro-life? Is it going to be kind of a, you know, you know where I'm headed? I mean, you got white, you got black, you got gray. Uh, where is the gray and when does the gray turn white or when does the gray um, turn black? That, that's just going to be an interesting experiment in state government. Let's go to the phone. Here is Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Hey, guys. Good morning. So I, I don't know that we'll run on it forever. I think eventually it settles down into going to end up being. One of the things, though, that, that I think conversation, and we're realizing now that we've been using the same talking points or we've been defending against the same talking points. They haven't changed much since 50 years ago. But what happens if a young man gets Hey, Larry, we lost you. We, we lost you for a second. Let's, let's do this, Mike. Let's take a break, and maybe Larry gets to a little better place uh, by then. It's about break ah, It's about break time. Mm-hmm. Let's put an A before that bout. It's about <laughs> break time. Let's be proper uh, on the airways. It's right. about break time. <laughs> let's take a break and, uh, and come back and see if we can get Larry a little more clearly. Always interested in what he has it's, to say. It's not about break time. Yeah. I think break time's closer to 11. Yeah. Okay. Mr. Funny Man. <laughs> Mr. Funny Man, dropping symbols, might as well. Who knows someone who can take an alligator and have him removed? I mean, only only they take a break. <laughs> back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I think we've got Larry back at a better uh, reception area. We hope. So let's go there. Hey, Larry. Uh, hey, I hope so. Is that better? That's much yes, better. Sir. Great. So what I was saying was that you know we've been responding to the same arguments about abortion or Roe v. Wade for about 50 years, and the truth is they don't really pay much attention to the changes in technology, and I don't know for sure, you know, I'm not a woman, but if if you're raped, you have the morning after pill now, right? Now, I know not every woman's going to report it, and there, there are going to be some issues, and there will be some, some uh, you know, longer-term issues there, but in general, in general, if we would let our women know, you know, this is available to you. They're being told by, you know, the other side for 50 years that the only option you have is to just be, you know, absolutely uh, saddled with a baby you didn't want. But but that's just not been true for a long time. The other thing with, with uh, you know, the, the abortion bills, well, I don't think we're going to have to run on this forever. I think that we'll pass the laws that we want and we'll settle it. And the question that some of these places are going to have to answer, like your Ohio's and Pennsylvania's, is I, I get you know when you get when you get elected, you represent all the people. At least that's what the Democrats have conditioned us to believe. But when the Democrats get elected, they don't represent all people. They represent whoever they feel like, and they do whatever they want because that's what majority rule is. So we have limits from the Constitution and from state constitutions to protect the minority's rights. But we've just established that abortion is not a right. So we don't have to protect some group's right to an abortion just because of their political feelings. So, you know, in, in Ohio or Pennsylvania, they can, you know, if, if they vote Republicans in, the majority rules, 
and they don't violate anyone's constitutional rights, they pass whatever abortion laws they want. So I don't know that just because you're in Pennsylvania means that you have to suddenly say, well, let me give up on my deeply held beliefs because some people don't hold them. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do in politics. So, you know, we'll see. But, you know, we talk about, you know, are we ever going to win and take advantage of the position that we gain from our win? Well, that's how it works. As long as we don't violate the Constitution, if conservatives win out in Ohio, then the laws will should reflect a conservative point of view. And I suppose if, if they don't vote in conservatives, then they'll get a liberal point of view. I don't know that there'll be a lot in between. We'll see. I, I've just never known the Democrats to be willing to compromise on anything. I don't know why they would start now. Um, but the other question that I had is, are we now, you know, does a county like Florence or Orangeburg or Darlington, do do their municipal governments have the right to say, well, we're not going to grant any building permits to any abortion clinics, regardless of what South Carolina says the law is? And will there be anything in the, you know, I, unless the state makes the law specific, will they be able to constrain them from being able to do that? And I think that's a good thing. You know, we can decide what kind of communities we want to live in. That's the beauty of overturning Roe v. Wade. It's not all this complication. It's this. People of an area can decide how do we want to live? What kind of community do we want? And I think that that's the beauty of federalism. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Very insightful. And I think Larry hit on a couple of points. Um, It even goes a little further than federalism. You've got the Hamiltonians who believe the central planner was the best way. You've got the, um, what I'll call the federalist, the Madison. Madison was a, a strong supporter of federalism. Um, if you give Jefferson a choice, he'd have been a, fe- you know, he'd have been a federalist instead of a, um, a Hamiltonian. But the Jeffersonian mindset is taking it a degree further. And, uh, and to Larry's point, give the, the local governments, you know, even more authority. In other words, um, you know, Florence may want to do something a little bit different than, than Ori does, or he may want to do a little something different than, um, I mean, that would be the Jeffersonian uh, government closest to the people is indeed the best government. The other thing Larry touched on that I think is so provocative, and I actually had a conversation yesterday with a member of um, of a legislative delegation, um, is the it's not a right. I mean, when you start with red flag laws, you got to understand that you're affecting somebody's fundamental right. I mean, there is a, an, an explicit right to keep and bear arms. So when you start monkeying around with gun legislation, you got to start from the point of I, as a legislator, am beginning to regulate someone's constitutional right. The abortion issue is fundamentally different. You don't start from that point. Now, I think the Republicans have failed to clearly understand that, and I think they've acquiesced, and I think they've given in to it's almost like we know it's not a right, but we debated the issue as if it is. And, and I think we've got to look at with clarity. I mean, you know, the, the Second Amendment gives you the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. I do believe there need to be regulations. Uh, some of the absolutists don't. I do. I think there need to be reasonable regulations in regards to the Second Amendment. We've had that debate many, many, many times over these airwaves. Um, but it is when you begin making regulations or creating regulato- uh, regulatory agencies, you are monkeying around with someone's fundamental constitutional right. Abortion is different. It is not a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion, but it deserves unbelievably serious consideration because you're you're talking about life and pregnancies and and human relationships and i think that warrants very serious consideration and and kind of a consciousness that that recent politics has not been able 
to demonstrate. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington joins us now. Hey, Sam. Hey, hey. Uh, Ken, I'd like to follow up on uh, what I started um, yesterday, and and we ran out of time. But uh, what I was trying to get at is that the state laws can only go so far. The state law is sort of like a bulldozer, but the moral decisions that people make in their private situations are are where you get into fine-tuning. And, uh, you know, the case, I think, morally, the case is that that, uh, we have an obligation to protect the life of an unborn child from the moment of conception. But uh, I don't think it's practical to try to run the state law back that far. It's just, it's not that when the state law says, well, we, we're not going to we're not going to try to get involved in this thing uh, until heartbeat is detected or until 12 weeks, which I think might be a little more practical. But, um, you know, it's not that we're saying that women should have an abortion. Then It's just saying we're not going to try to enforce it uh, because there's so much there's so much complications. You know, for for example, in. Um, in the South Carolina, in the law that's already been written and on hold uh, in South Carolina, I, I, I read, and I think I got this right, there's a list of things of serious threats to the mother's health and that can be you know, be an exemption. One is if uh, she's going to have to wear a colostomy bag the rest of her life, you know, I won't be able to go to the bathroom normally. Um, Sam, hang on. we got to take a hard break. We always run into hard breaks with oh. you, but, but I don't want to cut you off. If, if you've got time, I want you to hang on and continue your thoughts on the other side. Back in a minute. I love some of the news blurs when the weatherman says, we'll take it. at this point, we'll take any rain we can get. What is, what is option B? <laughs> I mean, is, is there another option? We won't yeah. take all the rain we can get. We won't take rain anytime right. it comes our way. Yeah, we refuse to take that rain right now. Oh, yeah. We'll wait a week. What you going to do about yeah. it? Is there another option that I don't know about? <laughs> um, that, it's just kind of, it's, it's humorous you, to you me. figured out a way to, to hear control this. the weather. Yeah, th- there you go. There you go. So this, uh, this subject we've been talking about, obviously, uh, and the way you've approached it here on talk radio, it's very thoughtful. It is, it's deep. It's serious. And at less, times, and, well, but, but I mean, this, it's a serious subject, and we're not, and we're purposely not being sensationalistic about it. I guess if that's a word. Um, and I've heard some talk radio shows that that have been as a result. I mean, even even gloaty in a way. Um, yeah. With their, with their response to yeah, this, those, but, those Democrats won't kill those babies anymore. Right. So that's not our approach here. I mean, no. This been, and, and our listeners have played a really a great role in in this serious discussion this is when i make the argument that talk radio does not maximize its potential we leave room to grow on the table by yesterday i heard a certain talk show host saying basically and i'm paraphrasing um yeah those democrats are mad today because they can't kill babies anymore guys this is a serious subject and it requires a serious debate and serious conversation yes democrats are more inclined to support abortion Yes, some of that is, um, in my humble opinion, immoral. But but this issue deserves a, a much more serious conversation that a lot of the nationally syndicated talk show hosts are willing to give it. And that's where I thank our listeners. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Um, we try at times to be a little more orderly 
and, and a little more constructive toward an end solution. And yes, I mean, when you're talking about abortion and life and rape and incest, I mean, that's, that's a different animal as far as I'm concerned, and it deserves a different degree of seriousness that talk radio historically has not been able to get. And that's that's the problem I have with talk radio. I love talk radio. I'm honored to be a part of it. I think it is the the most forceful voice, the most independent voice in American politics today. But but in situations like this, that you're right, that the gloating nature, in other words, the Roe v. Wade decision is made. It's overturned Friday. Monday, talk radio show hosts all over the country are kind of in gloating mode. Yeah, we taught those Democrats who want to kill babies a lesson now. No, I mean, there, there's a time for that. And there's a place for that. But today, state governments are going to have to come to grips with what their policies genuinely, sincerely look like. That is not something that needs to be driven by gloating or it needs to be serious, serious conversations about the the well-being of the unborn. I mean, that, that's where I want to focus and concentrate. How can we make sure that our priority is not politics, but the life of the unborn. Let's go to the phone. I we, think Sam's still there. Yep, we did. Uh, Sam held on, and we appreciate it. Hey, Sam. Hey, hey. I'll, I'll say first, I do appreciate what y'all are trying to do to have serious conversations rather than what you get on a lot of talk radio. Um, uh, going back to what I was saying, I, I, as as we as the states, as the state of South Carolina tries to, you know, ha- has to now um, put together a piece of legislation. I hope they'll keep in mind that a, a state law cannot cover everything. You can't be perfect. There's there are contingencies, things that come up, and uh, and the the self governance of the people, of the mother particularly, has to come in there. And that you know, there's there's some things that just is too complicated, or it's too hard to enforce, or well, think about um, you know. Beware of the of the prohibition experience. You know, there back in the 1920s. Uh, you know, there was a and and the before that. I mean, it was a big problem with uh, drunkenness and alcoholism, and it was doing a lot of damage. And so they came up with a you know a governmental solution we're going to solve this by law and it ended up backfiring there's probably more drunkenness after that <laughs> than there was you know illegal so you, you, I, I think that um well i know that people are going to say well now that we got the right we got to extend the state's jurisdiction back to the moment of conception or, or we got to not allow you know any Thing except life of the mother. Well, okay, life of the mother. Suppose the doctor says to a mother, okay, that if you carry this to term, there's a 75% chance you're going to die. All right. Um, does the state try to set the percentage that's allowable? I, I just think you got to, the state has to set the, you know, kind of broad boundaries, the kind of, you know, the state has to affirm that there, that is a separate person in there, and uh, and the state does have a responsibility to to protect, but you can't you, you can't um, replace the the self governance of the mother. You, you know, the churches and other people have got to go help her wrestle with those difficult decisions and help her 
follow through um, with the consequences maybe of, of having a baby, which maybe she can't afford, you know. So, so they, you know, it, it's just more complicated than that. You can't. I'm saying the state should not try to solve everything on it. You know, in fact, the state law is not perfect according to somebody's understanding of morality. That's okay. You know, the state sets a broad, a broad brush. Well that's said. All I got. Well, I mean, that's a lot. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. You know, um, from what I'm gathering, and I gathered a little bit yesterday, South Carolina can now enforce its ban. I mean, they've got this fetal heartbeat bill. Um, it is now law of the land or law of the, in the state of South Carolina. Um, the, the, the the law enforcement agencies entrusted with this responsibility can now enforce the heartbeat uh, bill, which uh, bans most abortions once a fetal heartbeat is detected, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of six weeks. Um, a federal judge, I don't know, stayed the injunction on the federal heartbeat bill once the law, I mean, the law had been blocked by the courts even after um, Henry McMaster signed it into law. Um, I've read some of the bill, not read it in its entirety because I always knew Roe v. Wade was out there. And, you know, if um, if the state legislation was in uh, violation of Roe v. Wade, not consistent with the federal um, law, the federal ruling, it's not a law, it's a ruling, um, then I didn't pay much attention to it because, once again, um, we by de facto go defer to the the Roe v. Wade decision for the past fifty three years, and I think the debate is fundamentally different today. And I think we've opened Pandora's box. I think Sam would agree to that. I think Larry would agree to that. I think the majority of people who have a um, a pretty passionate opinion about this. Um, but but right now, as we speak, the the injunction has been lifted. The state can't enforce its ban on most abortions um, once a fetal heartbeat is detected. Is that where we end up? Or now that the onerous is on the state, the obligation uh, defer. You know, now it, it goes back to the state to make the decision of what the law will be or will not be. Um, what will the law encompass in its entirety? Um, I'm trying to read here. It's just real small print. I pull the law up. The heartbeat bill law. Um, South Carolina's law outlaws abortions. Once the point of the fetal heartbeat is detected, required it. Uh, I got a short point to give a, the member an opportunity to view a. There you go. View an ultrasound. Hear the child's heartbeat. Receive information about her child's development. I mean, there's some pretty um, detailed and specific issues in here within the bill that I think we need to become far more versed and aware of. Because once again, there's not Roe v. Wade hanging out there that you knew was going to eventually. I mean, some of these states did it to show how conservative they are and how protecting of life they want to be. They knew they weren't legislated because Roe v. Wade was over there, and they knew that carried the day. Well, now it doesn't. So, so do we revisit? the fetal heartbeat bill? Do, do we put a more realistic approach to it? Um, I think Sam's exactly right. Um, how much morality is the government willing to get into? How much enforced morality? I mean, you know, you've got a, a view of morality. I have a view of morality. Mike has a view of morality. We all do. I mean, you you know, what's immoral to you may not be quite. I mean, my line of immorality may be a little bit different than yours. Um, it's just it's, it's going to get extremely complicated, and we're not going to get it are not going to get to a better place unless we all make as the priority the unborn. And that's what I hope we do. Yes, there has to be a balance with the mother, especially in rape, incest, life, and and, and some of these complications within. Um, but but I, I want us to always make as a priority the consideration of that unborn human life. Let's go to the phone. Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey, good morning. Hey, Carl. 
Hey, uh, let me tell you how South Carolina Republicans once again are useless. Um, you got you, you, all this is going to do. All the Roe v. Wade thing is going to do is going to make well, it'll, it'll it'll increase tourism to South Carolina for abortions because we have that bill uh, that you're talking about, which is a, a heartbeat bill. And let me tell, let me show you how stupid that is. Um, this like that's like cutting it off at six weeks or whatever. But who's going to be enforcing? Okay, here's a here's a 13 year old um, black girl coming in, and she's probably you know um, nine nine to 12 weeks in, and you know that that baby's heart is beating a mile a minute. Who's going to be going in taking the pulse of that fetus? You think that some um, you know some Karen soccer mom who's going to say nope, uh, 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 nope. Your baby's, um, your fetus's heart is beating a mile a minute. You can't have this abortion. Or is it going to be some uh, some trans female to male who, you know, has a, a, a face full of piercings and tattoos that's going to say, we'll make this, we'll make this um, uh, work for you, girl. Don't worry about it. Who do you think is going to be uh, enforcing that? And so that's why I'm saying the the Republicans in South Carolina are useless because what's going to happen is that six weeks is going to creep up to partial birth abortion and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it um, because that is you know that is our law of the land and I you know that's and that is why uh, when when people were coming out and saying oh we got this heartbeat bill it's just like. Oh, you know, it's just like um, remember they were gonna uh, over overturn Obamacare. Remember that? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing because that six weeks um, that six weeks heartbeat bill is going to creep up to unlimited abortions right here in South Carolina, and so we're not getting rid of any of the Planned Parenthoods across the across the fruitcake plain here in South Carolina. And and now this is going to be a destination state for people who want to come in and and get their get their babies blended in their um, uteruses and and sucked out with the uh, with the vacuum cleaner, and that's that's how life is going to be in South Carolina. So you know it is what it is. But once again, uh, state Republicans have failed us. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. I mean, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll watch and see if they readdress or uh, revisit some of this legislation. I'm reading a statement here from Alan Wilson, which is politically motivated. I mean, the heartbeat bill is now in effect. Once Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, the decision on legally protecting the lives of unborn babies was returned to the state, and there was no longer any basis for blocking South Carolina's heartbeat law. Our state is now carrying out a government's most sacred and fundamental duty, protecting rights. Um, when you really read the minutiae of the law, I'll try to do a better job of this today and, and get back with the audience tomorrow. Um, it, it, it'll, it may, I mean, it, I'm, 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 I'm kind of getting a, a summary here. Um, South Carolina's law basically outlaws abortions after the point at which a fetal heartbeat is detected. Um, six weeks is the, uh, the, the terminology I've heard used a lot. Um, it also requires an abortion provider to give the mother an opportunity to view an ultrasound, 
to have to hear her child's heartbeat to receive information about her child's development now there are exceptions allowing abortions in cases of rape and incest as long as the fetus is fewer than 20 weeks along and in in cases in which an abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother that's the that's kind of the high points now now once again um i don't know how careful they were in crafting the language because nobody expected roe v wade to be overturned now that roe v wade is overturned this is indeed abortion law in south carolina i mean the states have always um, to me that's who's supposed to make the decisions when it's not an explicit right via the constitution well here we are here we are did were these determinations made was this policy adopted um believing that one day better be careful here guys because one day this may be the law i won't be the law roe v wade's been in existence 53 years just put in there whatever we choose to put in there i'm not accusing anybody of anything but it's a new day uh it's a post roe america and these states are now obligated and solely responsible for what sort of abortion laws when can a woman and when can a woman not have an abortion what are the charges if she violates state law in other words if a woman lies about being raped has an abortion aborts that fetus aborts that baby that unborn baby um is she guilty of murder or a violation of abortion law that that, these these are interesting perplexities that we're going to have to deal with at some point in time now that roe v wade is no longer um the legal rendering that guided abortion law in america let's go to the phone bert in florence hey bert good morning I'm actually on my way to Columbia, but that's where I'm stationed is in Florence. Um, you know, th- that whole heartbeat law is under either a misunderstanding of medical knowledge or directly uh, misleading. Because what you actually hear at that time is a pulse from a vein. You don't actually hear a heartbeat doing anything until about 20 weeks. And I think that's going to end up in court one day because that's medically incorrect. But I have a 12-year-old daughter. I don't give a crap one way or the other what any law says. Do you think I would allow my 12-year-old to have a child? Absolutely not. Now, I guarantee you there's 101 different ways to abort a child, whether it's in a facility or a concoction that I can mix up and give her. There's no way that this is going to stand. It's ridiculous to even make any kind of law that causes a person to you know what are you going to do guard them 24 hours i mean put them on suicide watch there's no way they can enforce this it's just going to create falsehoods including accusing people of rape because even if you just say oh i was raped and i didn't know the person and give some vague description uh how many people are going to be locked up and sad to say most of those people will be black because what's the easiest thing to say oh some black guy caught me and raped me and I, I really don't know what he looks like. And then you got police investigations everywhere that amount to nothing because it never happened. So it's just confusion on confusion. They need to back off and let, you know, people decide their own decisions. This whole idea of it's murder is just ludicrous. It's absolutely crazy. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Someone else is on the phone. Let's go there. We'll go to Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, it, uh, very, very, uh, I, it's just a, a good show about a very important topic, but, uh, I, I'm not really satisfied with the idea. Well, this is an interesting topic, which 
is true, but to someone going through that situation, it's a life-changing topic. And that that is a situation I think uh, people need to get hold of. And in response to the, the previous comments, uh, remember the Tijuana, uh, Tijuana Brawley, Brawley uh, situation where she just made up this whole uh, whole thing about uh, being raped, and it uh, turned into a horrible situation. Uh, these kinds of things are, are bound to happen, and I don't know how you avoid them. There's no easy answer for these things. But uh, what about the availability of pregnancy uh, tests, positive, negative pregnancy tests? Are those going to be available to young people and that sort of thing? I'd just like to hear your comments on that. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. We're behind a bit. Just take a break. I'll come back and um. I've got some comments on Bruce and Mike's call as well. Love to hear from you. Uh, 843-661-0937. Waited a long time to hear this news. Now we've got the news as of Friday, and, and we're beginning to kind of um digest. Where do we go from here? Back in a minute. Everyone will all of a sudden be a medical and reproductive health expert, I would imagine, in South Carolina. You'll hear opinions from uh, the American Medical Association, the Amer- uh, what is it, the American College of um gynecologist uh, uh the, the the medically inaccurate information we'll hear about a heartbeat and viability and and all these other sorts of things and that's that's much necessary and I'm 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 I mean I've got no problem with that debate at the state level you know the problem I've always had was the lack of constitutional underpinning when it came to Roe v Wade um I'm not uh, a medical expert nor a reproductive health expert I'm certainly not a member of the American Medical Medical Association, American College of Gynecologists. Um, I read a lot from people who um, appear to know what they're talking about. <laughs> Maybe they're just good at, uh, you know, word salads and putting things in, in writing that um, that lead you to believe they know what they're talking about. But but the I think the win, the success here is this debate now will be had where it was always meant to be, and that is at the state level. The state governments will grapple with who do they believe in reproductive science? Who do they believe, the, the American Medical Association or the American College of Gynecologists? Uh, gynecologists? I mean, these, these issues now are in the hands of state legislatures and, and, and duly elected. I mean, it's not a Supreme Court justice somewhere way off. I mean, we'll never, ever encounter their sphere and then they'll never kind of um, delve in hours. I mean, I don't know if you, you ever bumped into Clarence Thomas at the gas station. I mean, if you run into uh, John Roberts at the uh, at the local grocery store, uh, no, but you see these people and you hold these people accountable. And um, and once again, the complicated, the complication of the debate is no less today than it was prior to Roe v. Wade. But the issue is going to be debated in the political laboratory that I think it needs to be debated. That is within the state governments. That was always the beef that conservative constitutionals had with Roe v. Wade. Um, I don't believe for a second that California is going to all of a sudden say our abortion laws were too liberal. You know, we need to reconsider what it is we do uh, with abortion legislation. No, I mean, I've always accepted that if Roe v. Wade was not law of the land, the people in California don't become more pro-life. The people in New York don't become more pro-life. The people in South Carolina don't become more pro-choice. But the debate is had where the debate was always intended to be had, and that is in the state governments. Let's go to the phone. Here's Rodney in Florence. Hello, Rodney. 
Hey, guys, love the show. Just want to remind everybody to go vote today. Miss Weaver needs us. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that. No question about it. Rev just asked me a second ago. Um, so the polls are open now. Um, here's the deal. And, and I talked to somebody in the know yesterday. Air quotes here in the know. Um, Weaver's going to lose unless a higher percentage of Republican primary voters go back to the poll today. Um, the teachers are motivated. The teachers voted uh, two weeks ago. The teachers are going to vote again and when I say the teachers normally vote Democrat 65-35, Kathy Manus is going to win the teacher vote in South Carolina, probably 90% to 10%. I mean, that's kind of where, um, and this is someone who, uh, let, let's just say this, I don't want to, this is someone who does a lot of polling, <laughs> and, and he's been a dependable ally of Wake Up Carolina, spoke with him a good bit yesterday about this race. Um he is someone who wants to see education reformed in South Carolina, but he was less than optimistic about what's going to happen today because, once again, um, the teachers, for whatever reason, just oppose any sort of choice and competition. I'm sorry. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, teachers vote for superintendent of education candidates who are normally of the establishment or the education establishment variety. So today in South Carolina, we have a unique decision to make. A, a candidate is running on reforming um, education in South Carolina by introducing competition and choice. I mean, there are a lot of other variables, but that is really the uh, kind of the line of demarcation. On this side is Ellen Weaver, who wants to fundamentally reform and change education in South Carolina. On the other side is Ellen, uh, excuse me, Kathy Maynes, who has no interest in that. She would be an establishment education um kind of just what is familiar is familiar if it ain't broke don't fix it and if it weren't broke i wouldn't want to fix it but it's broken it's broken bad we're 48th in america and some metrics were 49th in america in public education um and, and i'm gonna tell you the, the the only chance weaver has today is for republican primary voters who believe in competition and choice get off your duff find 10 minutes go to the poll and vote if we leave it excuse me if we leave it to the teachers, you're not going to get change. You're simply not. Um, the 65-35 lean to Democrats is probably going to be 90-10%. So the teachers are going to be most motivated to go vote. They're going to vote overwhelmingly in favor of Kathy Maness. And unless the conservative Republican primary voter decides to take 10 minutes out of their busy schedule and go cast a ballot for Ellen Weaver, you're going to get the same old, same old in public education in South Carolina. And that is deeply frustrating and bothersome to me, but it is what it is. The polls are open. You can go cast a ballot if you choose to. And rest assured, there will be a high percentage of teachers who voted two weeks ago that go back to vote again. And Kathy's going to win that vote by an overwhelming, a landslide sort of margin, maybe 90 tens high. But there's no way it's less than 75-25. I mean, it's probably closer to 90-10 than it is 75-25. And unless the conservative voices are heard, we're going to get, you know, kind of a status quo superintendent of education. I mean, the lady knows education, and the lady's very effective in delivering her message. She's advocated for public education. She's just not wanted to do much about changing it. So go vote. I mean, if you're a Republican primary voter and you want competition and change in education, 
go vote today for Ellen Weaver. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles. Hey, good morning. Kind of got tied up and in and out yesterday and didn't get an opportunity to call, but you were talking about Ralph Northam yesterday and his brilliant statement about delivering the baby live and make the baby comfortable uh, and let the mother decide whether to go ahead and kill it or let it live. Do you know what profession Ralph Northam is in real life outside of politics? I don't know, Charles. He is a pediatric physician. Hmm. And uh, so that's what makes that statement especially heinous for a pediatric physician to make a comment like that. And I'm going to ask one quick question, and then I'm going to leave you alone for the day. But in the case of rape or incest or the life of the mother, is the fetus a living being? Yes. If it is, if it is, then the same law should apply, regardless of the cause. That's my opinion. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I mean, we've expressed that this morning. A, a, a fetus born, um, a conception made in a in a relationship that involves rape, incest, is no. I mean, that life. I mean, obviously, the relationship is fundamentally different from a humanistic perspective. There's no comparison to a a rape or an incestuous relationship and a consenting sexual relationship. I mean, I think we agree. As human beings, we look at those fundamentally different. Um, but the life. The, the, the unborn, I mean, the, there is no difference. I mean, the, the, the child that eventually, the, the, the conception of human life in a, in a relationship that involves rape or incest is no less alive than one in a consensual, consenting no sexual relationship. Huh? And no less innocent. And no less innocent. There, there you go. I mean, I, you know, I would never argue that, that the life is, is fundamentally different, but, but the realities of how someone gets pregnant cannot be completely dismissed or discounted. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's just my opinion. Charles disagrees, and, and a lot of you disagree, and that's fine. I mean, we can have these debates and disagreements. Um, I'll accept. I mean, I will. I'll accept uh, that, that, that that conception is no um, less important, no less alive, no less innocent than one in a consenting sexual relationship. But you, you can't completely and totally discount the humanistic complications of one uh, juxtaposed to the other. I mean, I, I just and that that's something lawmakers will have to, to have to grapple with. Um, I, I hope we don't argue that there's a right and wrong answer. I hope we accept that it's tremendously complicated and unbelievably confusing to look at those two situations, different or the same. Uh, but th- th- these are the conversations that Rev asked a second ago. Is this the kind of issue that excites you to be a radio show host? Yes. Absolutely, it does. Yes, yes, yes. Because these sorts of conversations, we need to do better than the Democrats want to get kill babies anymore. And I heard a lot of that in talk radio, and I just think, Rev, that's where talk radio does itself a disservice. I believe that talk radio, and I'm kind of I'm cheering for the home team here. I think talk radio is probably the most powerful voice in American politics today. If you don't believe it, ask the left. I mean, they monitor everything Limbaugh ever did. They keep up with Hannity. I mean, they, you know, the local variety. Some of the, you know, Juan Williams said it the best. Uh, somebody was talking about, you know, where the public sentiment is. Uh, and Juan Williams said, yeah, but it's Saturday. Some, some news broke about a political issue Friday, late Friday afternoon. And they did some real immediate polling. And Juan Williams, it might have been Sunday morning shows. Williams is on Fox News. And he says, um, 
uh, they, they recount the public polling, and Juan Williams says, yeah, but those conservative radio show hosts haven't got to work yet. You wait till they get on the job Monday. They'll turn this thing to some degree, so I'm not buying that data right now. Um, so, so talk radio is an unbelievably powerful voice in American politics today. I think it's the most independent-minded and the most liberated thinking voice in American politics today. How many calls, Mike, have we said, don't let them on, don't let him on, don't let her on, don't let them say that. I mean, don't let them contradict what the host says. No, we embrace, we welcome uh, those sorts of um, of conversation because I think it's lacking, woefully lacking in the American discourse. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is next. Hey, Breeze. You know, um, you're right, Ken. Uh, the majority of people that work in, in public schools are Democrat, regardless of race, I believe. And um, But I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. I think what's going to start happening is, is these public schools, the state-supported college, and I see the college uh, enrollment is down, but if you look at going online and doing your high school online and maybe having a part-time job, you know, to, you know and doing it online, then, you know, you just cut all the teachers out. And after a while, if everybody's doing their stuff online, <clears throat> let's go out into the, to the government schools. Same way with the colleges. These professors that come in, and they're coming in later on today, what are they going to do when all of us don't send our kids to Francis Marion anymore because we don't want them to be indoctrinated? And there are literally you know, hundreds and hundreds of options to do it online. And then you say, well, you may miss that. And they will. They'll miss that, um, that, that college experience. But, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of parents would be glad they did, that the kids did, because when they send their kid off, the kid's saved, and he comes back four years later, and all that he's got a daggle Chairman Mouth t-shirt on. So, um, and another thing I've noticed, you know, um, we bought a vacuum cleaner at Lowe's for about a hundred uh, something bucks, and my wife was just, saw something on Amazon, the same exact vacuum cleaner was $40. So at some point... All of these people that don't want to go to work, well, you will get what you ask for, because after a while, if nobody goes to Lowe's, nobody goes to brick and mortars anymore because they aren't getting any service because nobody goes to work or for whatever reason, then you'll start seeing, you know, and that's going to send you back to that ESG thing where you'll have the, um, you know, the daggone um, that they'll just pay you to stay home. So I don't, I don't know. But let me ask you this, kid: Is anybody at the state, as uh, our governor, have they passed any election reform? I was talking to our buddy, his friends with Herschel Walker, said that Herschel would win the election in Georgia, but they don't think he can win it by enough points to beat the Democrat uh, cheating. So have we done anything here in South Carolina like that? Yeah, we've done some pretty significant election law changes in South Carolina. We went over a good bit of that last Friday, Breeze, with Rick and Bob Jordan and Lowe here. Um, in the eight so o'clock hour, get it passed. yeah, it's passed. I mean, it's you know, I, I, I don't know that the governor signed it into law yet, but um, I'll, I'll follow up on during the break and try to find that out. But no, we've um, we, we've addressed some of the drop, no drop boxes, no none of the Zuckerberg money can be yeah. spent in South Carolina. They've done not everything they wanted, but on a scale of one to ten, they probably got to eight and a half or nine. And I am I'm I'm that's, supportive that's of good, what right? they've done. Well, that's good. Let me ask you this, kid. I hope that everybody's not going to be, all the Republicans aren't going to be called flat-footed because I think Biden already telegraphed what they're doing, you know, the COVID too. 
and my buddy, you know, you know him too from our thing. He was saying that every that look for a crisis. Yeah, you know, they tried to, they tried, they've tried everything so far. They tried the Ukraine. You know, look for a crisis coming up here this fall because that's the only chance the Democrats have. They cannot win in a fair election. So look for some sort of a crisis. Look for some kind of a way for them to figure out how to steal this election. They, they, it could be COVID too. It could be splitter daggle, dread, whatever. They said, but watch out. And I hope the Republicans are prepared for this. And I saw where DeSantis passed a law stating that uh, you can't shut down religious institutions. I'd like to see South Carolina pass a law that says every business is an essential business in the state of South Carolina. Because, I mean, I hope the country, Democrat and Republican alike, are not going to fall for another one of these phony crises. Because, you know, that's, that's their plan. They create crises, scare everybody to death, where they'll accept anything to get out of this terrible situation they're in. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. We're behind a bit. Let's take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. I saw Tucker last night uh, talk about something you brought up on the show yesterday, which I really hadn't thought about until you brought it up, and then he you know, really illustrated it uh, uh, clearly and concisely okay. about these, uh, you, you would consider them the woke companies, the companies that have announced that they're going to pay travel expenses, for example, for employees to travel to a state where abortion is available, if it's not available in their state. Making a political statement. Right, and it seems like, okay, there's an, another corporation being woke to endear themselves to the wokeness for whatever reason. But as Tucker pointed out, and as you mentioned on the show yesterday, that's not necessarily the case. I don't buy it for a second. It, it has to do with money and labor sure. costs. And I mean, having a baby is expensive. I mean, it takes a woman away from the job. It wow. takes a father away from the job at times. Um, businesses, okay, maybe they're woke, but they're they're more greedy than woke. They want to make as much money as they possibly can. And if um if a family is started, if a female employee gets pregnant, guess what? Maternity leave, ear infections, doctor visits, um, school board meetings, PTAs, and Ball all those games. other sure all those other things that go along with it. Same. I mean, my life was a lot less complicated when I was not a father. I mean, there, there's a certain degree of involvement required of someone when they become a dad. Um, and I wanted to be a good father, and I've been okay. Um, depends on what day of the week it is and, <laughs> and, and what kid you're asking, if I've been, if I've been yeah. a, a pretty good father. But, but in all seriousness, um, companies are there to make money, and they make more money when um, employees are there being productive. And when an employee is not there but, but rather at a doctor's office or um, at some PTA meeting or some school trip, um, they're not as productive. So, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a degree of wokeism, and I think, you know, um, let's prove to the world how much we care at Dick's Sporting Goods or at, you know, some of these others. Uh, Disney would be a company. Netflix um, came. I just think it's kind of interesting that Dick's Sporting Goods has a lot to do with this abortion issue. But anyway, that's the story for another day, um, oh, oh. and that probably gets you in trouble. with. And, and for you, some of you <laughs> listeners, you're a little slow. You'll come around oh, at, at about 4 o'clock this afternoon, you'll say, Oh, okay. What, I, I get what, it what now. What did he say? I, I get it now. I understand uh, what he said. But no, Netflix and Disney and some of these other, um, you know, some of these other companies want to express to the world how um, politically correct and, and woke they are and caring and sympathetic uh, they are to the um, the downtrodden, um, the less fortunate. Uh, but, but no, I don't buy that for a second. I think their priority is, always has been, always will be profit. 
So when a woman gets pregnant, has a baby, she's a less valuable employee. Um, she's got complications in her life that she didn't have before. Um, and I don't think it's a business's job to set the moral compass. I mean, I think the business is there. We've had this conversation before. Corporations are intended to make money. Uh, that's their number one priority. Uh, a female who doesn't have a baby is probably going to be a more productive than a female who does have a baby. Um, it's kind of interesting, Disney. Disney's business model requires kids. <laughs> so, so Disney's going to fund abortions. Uh, it's it's kind of like, wow, can anything be more um, oxymoronic than that? Wow. So the, the Disney model, it depends on kids. You know, kids begging their parents or parents wanting to be great parents and carry their kids to Disney World. But yet Disney is going to, you know, fly a female or drive a female to wherever state abortion is more readily available to do what? Cause another kid to not be born. Mm. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Got a caller. Got Dr. Will Bold here. Dr. Scott Kaufman is traveling abroad. Um, not on the air with us this morning. We wish him safe travels, and I'm sure he'll be even more enlightened uh, when he gets back in a, in a couple of weeks. But Dr. Bold is with us. And, and I want to go down the road of early American history and central government and Jeffersonian government and Andrew Jackson. We'll get Andrew Jackson in there right. as well. Got a caller. Before we go to the call, um, I'm, been, I'm talking to business owners today. And they're expressing concern. And their concern is they, they see demand destruction. They're beginning to see restaurants aren't quite as crowded. Um, you've said you've noticed that I've in noticed recent oh, yeah. times. Um, America consumes about 200, um, excuse me, 500 million gallons of gas and diesel every day. I mean, stick with me for a second. So five, it's about 375 million gallons of gas, about 120 to 25 million gallons of diesel fuel which collectively 500 million gallons of gas and diesel a day are burned in the United States of America. When the average price is $2.50 a gallon, that's $1.25 billion a day we spend on gas and diesel. When it averages about $5 a gallon, that's $2.50 billion a day that we spend on fuel. That's $1.25 billion that consumers don't have to go to a restaurant to go to a, a department store, to go whatever. I mean, go on a trip, go do whatever. And that's why we're beginning to see demand destruction. Those are big numbers, guys. I mean, th those are, are staggering numbers. Once again, we burn about 375 million gallons of gas per day. We burn about 122 million gallons of diesel fuel per day. So let's round off and say 500 million gallons at 250 a gallon. That's 1.25 billion at five. Um, dollars a gallon that's 2.50 billion so 1.25 billion dollars every day that americans don't have to spend on fun stuff and and that's i mean that's really beginning to take its toll on the american economy so demand destruction is real it's right before our very eyes i think we're already in a recession i think the recession is because we've taken the 1.25 billion dollars of uh, of spending and you know when, when it takes a uh, hundred dollars to fill your truck up instead of 50 that's 50 you don't have i mean you got to get from point a to point b um so what do you do with that 50 you normally go get something to eat a couple of times a week or you you know buy something from a department store you get that latest under armor shirt you wanted to work out in um but you're not getting that now because you're forced to spend the majority of your income on um, you know, energy to get you from point A to point B. Add the fact that um, I told Rev, I went to the grocery store um, Sunday afternoon, late afternoon, and 
I, I'm not going to say what I got, but it, yeah, I did. It's got some salmon. I mean, some salmon from a local grocery store. I kind of anticipated 10 or $11 an, uh, a pound, $19 per pound. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was like, this can't be real, but, but it is. And, um, and Biden inflation is real. It's relevant. And it's killing the average American working family. It's destroying any disposable income they may have had before energy went up and food and all these other things. I mean, it's crazy what it costs to just live a normal life today. No, but Biden says the economy is great. You know, people are saving bunches of money and nope, nothing to see here. Biden is, I'm going to be as, as nice as I can. You ready? Biden is a senile old man who has no business in the White House. I mean, that's as gracious as I can be. Joe Biden is a senile old man who has absolutely zero business in the White House. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll go to Dr. Bolt. Don in Florence. Hello, Don. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, uh, first time calling. I uh, lived here for about a year now, just moved down, and, and I appreciate the fact that every morning I get to listen to you all and uh, listen to the great dialogue. Uh, today I just felt like it was time for me to make a call and provide some, some comments. Um, I'm going back to, and I'll give you my background. I'm a husband, a father, retired military, and now a history school teacher uh, at the high school level. And uh, the two things that come to mind as I listen this morning is personal responsibility and the juxtaposition of the laws. And I'll say about personal responsibility, I've heard some of the callers calling about uh, regarding the Roe v. Wade overturn with the Dobbs case and the perspective they may have. And the truth is, which is one of the callers said with a valid point, Despite what law we may pass, we know the laws get broken, and therefore abortions will probably still continue, uh, regardless of what state you live in. But we have to understand the, the personal responsibility. In my experience in the military and in, in the school, is that these people do understand that they're making decisions. Even as young as the one caller said, if I had a 12-year-old that was pregnant, uh, I wish I could say that it's not true, but it is true that our kids all the way down to middle school, even before that, are sexually active, which means they're making personal choices, and choices have repercussions. And sadly, our society is failing to understand that as adults and even as, as young children or youth, that you have personal responsibility, even to the point of if you make a choice uh, to do a, uh, an action that you're going to have some enjoyment from, there's also a possible repercussion, which includes bearing the child. And so we have to take personal responsibility. What that means is we have to raise that child. We have to raise that child regardless of the age. And that needs to be understood. And so therefore, maybe they make a better decision again, a personal responsibility decision, make better choice before the time of conception. Um, from there, the other part I would talk about is the law itself. It's interesting that I, I've been a foster parent, and the 14th Amendment makes it very clear that any child born in the United States is a citizen. And I know that being a foster parent, we have agencies that will advocate for children, and they, they will be their lawyer because they understand that is a viable individual. That is an action American citizen. Therefore, they have rights. And yet the juxtaposition I see is that we don't seem to give the same viability. I realize the child may not have been born, but it is living, and if born by our laws, would be a citizen. And we will advocate, and there's even laws out there that say if, I had, if someone was to attack a pregnant woman and, and the woman was to perish along with the child, you could be charged with murder twice, which means there's laws that say that is a living being, even an American citizen. But we have a hard time. We, we can't seem to wrap our, our arms around the fact that this is a dichotomy. So Personal responsibility, we have to take that all the way down and ask those parents, have to help those kids understand if you do this, there is a personal responsibility. And number two, the black and white law. We have to understand where it stands, regardless of our, our beliefs and my biblical beliefs, um, that definitely weigh in heavily about my decisions. But even being a history teacher and looking at things from my background in the military and the government, I say, 
look, there's a black and white to things, and we got to figure that out because it makes it a lot easier to figure out where we, we stop and where we start. And uh, with that, gentlemen, I'll leave it. Thank you, Don. Appreciate it. Welcome aboard. Good to have you um, listening to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance every morning. He didn't say every morning, but we did every morning. <laughs> we got to assume he's with us every yeah. morning, hanging on every word. Uh, that we utter, but but a very interesting call and and kind of multifaceted. We'll go to the personal. Well, let's go to the other first with the um with the word codify. You'll hear a lot of that, and in, in, in the next week or two or three, you hear a lot of codifying the law um, chronologically. You know how do these laws consistently apply themselves? Um, codify is kind of a political word. It simply means to arrange in a specific and consistent manner or fashion. Um, that that's kind of dog whistle for we don't like the law. We don't like the way this um, this broke. Um, the, the personal responsibility is so important here because um, Anna Navarro, uh, she's on The View, I think. She's a Bush alumnus. Um, wow. I mean, when you think about how many Bushies are working with the liberal media, um, I mean, I'm serious. But I mean, that may be the legacy of the Bush dynasty. How many of the Bush alumni are, are working for, or the alumnus are working for uh, the left calls. It, it's pretty staggered. It really and truly, and I think this is a fair um, consideration to be, were the Bushes really Republicans? <laughs> I mean, Dr. Bolt's kind of giggling. Were the Bushes really Republicans? Because everybody that worked in those administrations has gone to work for a, a liberal institution, the media by and large. But Navarro said yesterday um, that the Republicans have to be consistent. In other words, if you want this baby born, then it's your job to care for it. It's your job to provide health insurance and food. No, no, I didn't get pregnant. I didn't get the woman pregnant. I mean, there has to be some personal responsibility here. But Navarro, a Republican, says that it's all of a sudden when we force the woman to have a baby, then it's our responsibility collectively as society, as a village, to raise that child. No, the woman made a conscious decision to have consenting sex with a man. Uh, There's a chance you get pregnant. When that happens, there's an obligation you have to that unborn child to provide, period. I mean, it's as simple as that. But personal responsibility is offensive today in American culture. And and we've got to stop that. I mean, we got to demand. I would expect the Democrat to say something like that. Somebody who believes government is the great equalizer. You know, it's the, it's the moral arbiter. It, it creates fairness in society where, where human beings can't. But, but Navarro worked for the Bushes, and, and she's out there saying— that you know, we all collectively have a responsibility, not not a choice. I mean, charity is a choice. I give to charity. You give to charity. We all give to charity because we see hardships that we believe need um, consideration and support. So you know, but but it's it's voluntary. To suggest that I involuntarily should be forced to care for a child that is born out of a consenting relationship is, is just un-American. I mean, that's it. But but a Republican, someone who worked for the Bushes is out on television, you know, media saying this. See if you can find that. I want to play that Navarro speech. But, um, and, and Dr. Bolt, you're here. I want to get to um, c- kind of the, the argument of central government or not. But what do you make of um, where we are now in this post-Roe v. Wade dynamic? Well, yeah, we've, we talked about before the uh, off the air. You could read the tea leaves. We, this, we, everybody saw this, saw this coming. And so everybody who's lighting their hair on fire, I guess, the question is, what, why did it take so long? And you, and you have to tip your hat to Christians, evangelicals, opponents. Of, they have been chipping away. They have played the long game. And nearly 50 years in a struggle for what they thought was a, a moral crusade. And again, they won. And again, it's not, it's all the decisions, it now reverts back to the states. All right. So again, each of the states, which is what the founding fathers probably envisioned, 
50 states can now make their own laws deciding if this is correct or not. And again, you were talking about it before I came on the air. A lot of businesses, surprisingly, dicks are now offering up to $4,000 to two employees uh, if you want to go and have this procedure, whatever term you want to use for it. Uh, certainly not what I wouldn't have expected Dix to be one of the ones uh, awoke awoke business, if you will. So yeah, this is this is where we are. And again, it's again there's a lot, we've seen all sorts of protests. Thomas Jefferson would probably applaud these, even if he didn't agree with the issue. That people are expressing their views. Is it going to have any influence? I, barring a dramatic change in the Supreme Court, I think you're, it's it's going to be a long time before this issue is revisited at the national level. Again, so but speaking of the of the courts, I would argue that this is the absolute uh, confirmation that Donald Trump is a consequential president. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about the disruptor, the troublemaker, the rabble rouser, the, the yeah. wrecking ball. But but his legacy will be um, the placing of these three people three. on the court. That, right. that really and truly, I mean, I'm gonna say something. You give me a response. This is no longer the Roberts Court. This is now right. the Trump Court. No, absolutely. Hey, just think about. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, are we talking about this? Absolutely not. We're probably pulling our hair out over a Supreme Court decision that just gutted the Second Amendment. It's pro- it probably would have gone the other way. So it's an ex- excellent example of elections have consequences. And very rarely in American history do you have one such as 2016 where the right guy gets in at the right time and can make three appointments to the Supreme Court and can really, really shift Say what you want about President Trump, the disruptor, if you thought he was a fool, this is probably going to be his legacy, just shifting the Supreme Court uh, to the right and, again, making this this decision possible. And, Rev, you take exception with the conservatives or the so-called conservatives who supported Hillary Clinton uh, because, as Dr. Bolt said, we would have never, ever had these rulings had Hillary Clinton got elected and liberal justices be put on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I, and I looked at not only the, the the first election, but in 2020, I think about the, the people that were so aggravated with, the people that abandoned Trump or never supported him, um, but they would be very happy with this decision. You know, Do they give him any credit for that? But they, they turned their back on him, and he didn't get reelected, yeah. right? And well, I'm talking about the Lincoln Project type. Sure. You know who I'm talking and about. And many of the establishment Republicans who just refused to go there. Um, they couldn't get to America first. They couldn't get to this this pro-worker, pro-family, uh, you know, party that I think Trade, we're yep. evolving into. Um, Jim yep. made an interesting point yesterday about, you know, what are we going to do? A uh, pro-worker, pro-family sort of party. I've got some ideas, and I actually made some notes here this morning we may get to. But I want to take a break, come back after the <laughs> break, and I want to get with Dr. Bold about, you know, this Hamiltonian, Jeffersonian argument that defined the first, what, 50 or 60 years yeah. of the country, um, it was about central planning and and states' rights, federalism. Uh, Madison's intimately involved in all of this. Sure. But but I want to go back and and talk about the early days because at the end of the day, that there is a moral and 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 religious component to the argument of abortion. But at the end of the day, those justices were there to interpret the Constitution, not from a religious perspective, not from a moral perspective. But but I would argue from a kind of kind of a constitutionalist perspective, um, and I want to get with Dr. Bolt, an early American history professor, about this. Um, it seems that Jefferson won the battle but lost the war. Is this kind of a win for Jeffersonian government? Take a break. Back in a minute. Okay, we've talked a little bit about living in a post-Roe world. We talked about the, the the state legislatures around the country that will have to make determinations and decisions about you know some of the trigger laws and revisiting or not. Uh, the heartbeat bills and the liberal states and conservative states. 
But I want to go back in time. Dr. Will Bolt is a early American. who was a history professor, Francis Marion, with a kind of a subspecialty in early American history. I want to go back to the original argument after and we're talking about post-revolutionary war. Um, we're a baby of a nation. Um, they, there are two figures that are principled in kind of the debate about central government or not. Because the argument with Roe v. Wade is that that's not a that's not a. Uh, that's not a concern of the federal government. Abortion is not an explicit right. And anything that's not, you know, uh, either you amend it or you follow the Constitution. Um, So despite what the liberal media says, the Second Amendment is an explicit right. I mean, the the right to keep and bear arms. So the federal government does have an ability to say what states can or cannot do to that right. Uh, Abortion is not a constitutionally granted right. But I want to go back to um, Jefferson and Hamilton. And, and I want to, you know, the, the, the limited central government, the expansive central government. Who were the other characters? Um, Andrew Jackson was the seventh American Later president. On, right. But while Jefferson, you said in the break, while Jefferson was presiding officer, Jackson was a member uh, of the body. Yeah. So, so they knew one another. Um, <laughs> walk us through the, 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 the beginning of the Jefferson-Hamilton debate that does eventually affect Roe v. Wade because a constitution afforded the federal government limited responsibilities. Well, it's one of the great ironies in American history that the probably two of our greatest constitutional philosophers, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, are not in the country. They're serving abroad when we write our constitution. And so John Adams certainly was a, a strong proponent of a strong central government centralist, just like Hamilton. And the first time Hamilton meets Thomas Jefferson, they're outside of George Washington's office in New York City, waiting to go in. And outside of the office are these paintings of all these great thinkers of the Enlightenment. You got Newton, Voltaire, all these boring guys. You got to read in political science, right? All these intellectuals. And Hamilton says, "Wow, we're surrounded by all these these great thinkers." And Jefferson says, well, "Of course, yes, these these are great." And Jefferson thinks this Hamilton guy is a good guy. We've got something in common. And then Hamilton says, "But you know who is a great man? You know who we're missing?" From up here, and Jefferson says, my God, no, who? Please tell me. And Hamilton says, Julius Caesar. And, of course, right then and there, Jefferson kind of said, wait a minute. If your hero is Julius Caesar, a guy who overthrew a republic, I might want to kind of keep keep my eye on you. And so this was sort of the, the beginning, if you will, of the strained relationship between the two. The two men start off, again, as bitter rivals in Washington's cabinet. They both have different visions uh, for the country. And, of course, Jefferson wins this whole series of the battles, if you will, right? He gets the upper hand, becomes president. Jefferson, as president, the great proponent of states' rights, says, all you need the national government for is, the, is to carry the mail. You don't even need a, a standing army. We've got all these states who have the militias. Uh, Jefferson even said, why bother competing with the British Navy? So Jefferson guts the Navy, and Jefferson's philosophy was, let's put a cannon on a rowboat. And so a cannon with a rowboat is going to take on a 50-gun British frigate. And so, but again, that's how you save a whole bunch of money. Jefferson wanted to, to cut the debt. And of course, what happens is that Jefferson's successors, who all thought they were kind of cut from the fabric of Jefferson, turn out kind of being falling into the orbit of, the orbit of Hamilton. James Madison and James Monroe. Uh, Madison signs a bill creating a national bank, which Jefferson said, this is, this is nuts. Madison signs a bill to impose taxes during the War of 1812. James Monroe now begins spending money on internal improvements, dare I say infrastructure. And so by the time it's the guy who finally unravels all of this, 
uh, is Andrew Jackson. And he would be the seventh American He's president. Jefferson and Jackson met when Jefferson was vice president. Uh, Jackson was a member of the Senate, hated being in the Senate. Jefferson hated being vice president. And Jefferson said, yeah, I met this Jackson guy. The guy couldn't give a speech, say a single sentence, without stammering and cursing and slurring his words. And so Jefferson, the great intellectual, always reading these books, uh, didn't think very highly of Andrew Jackson. But Jackson, of course, thought he was the, the intellectual heir to Thomas Jefferson. And Andrew Jackson, as president, is the only president who got rid of the national debt. The only time in American history, it's while Andrew Jackson was president. But Jackson genuinely and sincerely was of the common man. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was not an elitist. He was not um, as as uh, affluent right. as Jefferson was. So, so <laughs> did that relationship improve? In other words, when 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 Jackson began carrying the water yeah. on behalf of the uh, what I'll call the populist, because I've never understood why Jefferson became a populist. Himself, I mean, nothing yeah. about him suggested he should right. be eventually a populist. But but did did Jefferson ever reconcile his feelings on on Jackson? Is no. there any indication that he said, no, Jefferson, this, this Jackson guy that I insulted <laughs> a long time ago might not be so bad? No, Jefferson, like a lot of individuals who eventually kind of warmed to him, but thought that Jackson was dangerous. He was a military chief. But he was kind of Napoleon. dangerous, wasn't he? Dr. Bull? Well, again, he, he was governed by his passions. Every other politician was, they sort of were composed and they thought, Jackson, you knew where you stood with him. And if Jackson didn't like you, he'd tell you, would probably say some unchristian things, some some derogatory terms. Trump-like? Exactly. <laughs> you can see where you can see where we're going with this. And so again, Jeff, Jackson, Jefferson never reconciled himself to Jackson. It was thought that this was just a terrible thing for the country, this Jackson movement. Thing. And this is happening while Jefferson is in his dying days. And so Jefferson doesn't live to see Jackson elected. He lives to see him defeated when the election was stolen from Jackson. And to Jackson. enjoy him being defeated. So probably, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but they had a similarity, and the similarity was this, this, this belief in limited government. Right. Small, this belief that a small government. federal government is going to serve us better as we continue as a nation. Let the states. This is where, again, this was as Jefferson and then Jackson understood it. And probably the majority of the people at the time, right? You've got these 13 states, eventually 50 where we are now. But again, this is where the majority of the decisions should be made, right? You have these sovereign states. And again, this was sort of the glue that linked the two guys together. And I've said before, Jefferson, you don't need a big, powerful national government. That's what you have over in these corrupt monarchies over in Europe. Big, powerful national government is going to impugn threaten our liberties. So again, we've got to keep as many of the rights and responsibilities at the state and the local level. Okay. And in the early days, it looked like Jefferson was having his way. He was getting the best off Hamilton. In other words, if there was a, if there's a prize fight, Hamiltonians versus Jeffersonians, right. the Jeffersonians are head on the scorecard in about the seventh or eighth round. Absolutely. When did it turn? What was the impetus that led to an expansive federal government? Right. Jefferson wins all the battles. Hamilton wins the war. He wins it at Appomattox. Once the, the Civil War and the Republican Party is in place, uh, the Democrats who, the heirs of Jefferson, were, were defeated. They're out of power in the South, and the Northern Democrats just simply don't have enough political power. So the North, with the Hamiltonian vision, has carte blanche. I uh, can impose their viewpoint, a strong, powerful national an industrial revolution. And it's not until really the 20th century where the Democrats are strong enough to oppose it, but it's too late. I mean, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in.
So the end of Jeffersonians as a governing philosophy was Appomattox. I mean, obviously it still exists. I would consider myself to be a Jeffersonian, a kind of a libertarian Jeffersonian. Um, but but as a as a, as the dominant political ide- ideology in force in America, it ended at Appomattox. Yeah, and Jefferson wanted us to be a nation of farmers because in Jefferson's philosophy, the farmer is the only one who's truly free. He's not dependent on anyone. If you're an industrial worker, right, you're dependent on your boss, your overseer for your wages. If he mismanages the business, you're poop out of luck, right? So again, the farmer, he's only dependent on his own hard work. Once you have the industrial revolution, we become a nation where the majority of the people are now dependent wage earners. And again, once you have this put in place, you can't repeal it. You can't roll it back. From that perspective, in, in the early American days, because I think it's interesting we have a early American or a history professor, and we're talking about Roe v. Wade, and Roe v. Wade basically was a constitutional argument. I mean, it's not about religion. It's not about morality. It's not about – I mean, these, these justices, I would imagine, they have a certain moral compass and a certain religious belief. Right. But ultimately, their job was to interpret the Constitution. They interpreted it um, in a very textualist sort of way, Going as, as Jefferson sure. would have been proud of. Mm-hmm. I just got to believe that Jefferson probably kind of gave a thumbs up to what happened on Friday. Would you agree to that? Jefferson would say, where in the Constitution do you have this explicit right for an abortion? And Jefferson said, no, you don't. How do you get to it? Through a Hamiltonian interpreter. You've got to jump through a whole series of hoops and make these lodge of these, these arguments in order to get there. And Jefferson's philosophy was the government should only be able to do the powers that are specifically delegated to it. Once you go beyond that, you've opened up a whole big... Uh, can of worms. And Jefferson didn't even like the fact that we were having military academies. And others would say, well, yeah, but you, we have the power to create an army and a navy. Stands to reason we can create a West Point or an Annapolis. And I said, no, 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 it's not specific. If you want to do it, get an amendment, right? Get two-thirds of the Congress and three-quarters of the people, then it's fine. Was the, was the intellectual debate between Adams and Jefferson the, the most intellectual in our country's history? These are right, right, two very, very smart guys who could go on and on about the ancient Greeks. I mean, if you really want to torment the influences somebody. of John Locke, and, exactly and, and, right. You know, these, these, it just elite intellectual, very, very boring, dry guys. You know, if you want to torture somebody, <laughs> go read a John Locke piece. Well, lots, of, lots of ideas, but it's, these are those guys, right? Where you spend fifteen, twenty minutes reading, and you're like, "What the heck did I just read?" Yeah, and I wasted twenty minutes of my life but again if you want if you want to look smart in front of you know intellectual you know college professors oh yeah yeah john, john Locke, okay yeah. But, but here's my question so what how did the country benefit from the intellectualism and the debate the intellectual debate of jefferson and adams i mean if they were the two consummate intellects in our founding i mean washington was not intellect no uh, he pretended to be no it, and he didn't profess didn't try to be yeah. could have, and probably laughed under his breath at some of the conversations adams and jefferson but how did the country what what good um, the, the America we live in today owes what debt of gratitude to the intellectual debate between Adams and Jefferson? Because I've always felt that was the most consequential intellectual sure. uh, arguments to be made at the country's founding. Hey, whether successful or not, they, again, they are trying to uplift us, you know, kind of raise all of us up, and again, with varying degrees of success. And again, you have someone like an Andrew Jackson, who was president in the United States, uh, a very rudimentary, rough education, no no college at all. And a lot of the guys who came after Jackson, even Lincoln, uh, didn't have any college education. And so this was a Jefferson, uh, John Adams, John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, right, talked about 
public funding for, for education, nationalization of education, just kind of uplift again. They thought that this was the best way to success. And again, it's a debate we're still having nowadays here in America, right? And Jefferson and, and Adams both had gone to college, uh, John Adams to Harvard, right? To Jefferson, William and Mary, Jefferson, who creates the University of Virginia, would certainly say, yes, everybody needs an education. This is the pathway to success. And I was supposed to say, no, there's, there are other pathways that you can be successful rather than going to college uh, for six or eight years. So again, it's, a, it's an argument that still resonates to this day. And their, their fingerprints were on the decision Friday with the U.S. Supreme Court. What do you make of, as a, as a, as a historical, um, as somebody who teaches history, um, if you had a history class in front of you today and someone said, what are we to make of the Roe v. Wade overturned uh, this Friday, what would you as an historian say? Well, I would say this was probably what the founding fathers had interpreted or envisioned with the Constitution. That again, this was going to be the majority of decisions would be made at the state and at the local level. We've been so accustomed in our lives with Big Brother Washington, where all the major decisions are made. Whether you like it or not, it's kind of refreshing, and it's probably what the how the government was supposed to work. And so, are we going to? Just go off on a new track, and we're going to have more decisions like this, where the decisions kind of get punted back to the states, a more democratic view, if you will, democratic with a small d, who knows. But again, right, this is probably somewhere, uh, whether he agreed with it or not, Thomas Jefferson was probably smiling, and Alexander Hamilton was probably gnashing his teeth, uh, cursing, probably. Is there been a time in, in recent American history, obviously not recent, in, uh, in modern American history, where the courts seem to be this committed to the Constitution. No, I think we're I think we're uh, at the dawn probably of something new. For so many years we've had sort of this idea of a living Constitution. You kind of need to find loosely interpreted exactly. I've heard some of that legal mumbo like, jumbo. Uh, the Ninth Amendment where you can kind of ram anything through it if you will or the 14th Amendment with equal protection. Uh the first time in a long while where the uh, the majority of the justices said I don't see it. It, it it's not in here. All right, so again, we're not outlawing it. We're just going to make it go back to the states. And you think this is a trend? I mean, do you think this court has the... I think there's the potential, right, to start to kind of seeing a new wave, a new line of thought. And again, whether you, if you like it, I think then you're, you're going to be very happy. If you don't, these are some very young justices, and they're probably going to be around there for a long time. And kind of unraveling this is, is going to take a couple of generations. That's very interesting. Thank you, sir, for your no, time. Thank you. Always we'll take pleasure. a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Apologize to the callers who tried to get in during the segment with Dr. Bolt. But, I, man, if I start talking about Jefferson and Adams. <laughs> you, and You, you were uh, locked in. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, because I've read so much about it, tried to understand uh, the complexities of those relationships, uh, the disgruntlement. I mean, I still believe this, that Jefferson and Adams, um, their relationship here on Earth, was about as complicated and consequential as any two human beings have ever had. And my father and I had a complicated relationship. You and your dad probably did. Most of our fathers and uh, and sons, mothers and daughters, I mean, those are complicated relationships. But with a nation at stake, those two guys probably intellectually argued for the form of government we have more than anybody. I mean, I'm not saying they fought for it. Washington was a general. I mean, he was on the battlefield. Um, Jefferson and Adams... Don't impress me to be the kind of um, of men who would lead armies into battle, but they thought so much for the uh, for the revolution. They thought so much for the baby of a nation, and and I just when I when what happened. I mean, I told you Friday 
uh, when when I get the word that Roe v. Wade is overturned, my mind immediately goes to these eight or nine people um, that I got to know when I was lieutenant governor who had given so much of their life to uh, protecting life. And you can debate whether you agree with abortion or not. These ladies were so committed, and and I said it yesterday, and I'll say it again. I don't know how many hotel rooms they paid for out of their own pocket when a lady felt the only options she had was to have the baby and try to raise it or abort the baby. Um, these women came into their lives and said, "No, here's adoption agencies, here's counseling, here's um, here's employment opportunities. Here are a lot of ways we can get you back in in good standing." Um, you made a decision. Here's the result of that decision, but the choice doesn't necessarily have to be that. I mean, Alexa Newman comes to mind and several other ladies um, and, and a couple of men that I know were just so dedicated to that. But but the other people I thought about was Jefferson and some of the state's rights, some of the Federalists, James Madison, who wrote the Federalist Papers or had a lot to do with the Federalist uh, Papers. I went back and read some of the Federalist Papers over the weekend, and I get real moved by that. I mean, most of you think I'm weird in that regard, and I'm weird in a lot of ways. I don't think that's one, but I really went back and tried to grab, I don't know, try to understand how proud um, Jefferson would have been with what the court did. You know, kind of think about, you know, an African-American justice having such a an enormous impact on these two decisions, gun control and abortion. And I think about Jefferson, the slave owner and the plantation owner. I mean, there's so many complications here and I think to, to appreciate and understand American history, you have to try and accept it. And it's easy to say, well, I'd have done this or I'd have done that. Well, nobody knows what you would have done in the early 1800s, late 1700s, when these men were making these contributions to a nation. You know, and despite these differences, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Washington, the one thing they were fairly consistent about was liberty and freedom. I mean, that they were they were all in on liberty and freedom. Um, and it's interesting when Adam said, you know, Julius Caesar, or when Hamilton said Julius Caesar. I mean, there there are many writings about that meeting in Jefferson. Oh, the guy that overthrew a republic. I don't know if I would you know hold him in high regard or not. But we've actually done some shows, not recently, but in in days gone by, where we talked about the impact of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, uh, the book Leviathan. And, you know, we need a big government. People on their own volition aren't smart enough. They aren't capable enough. Um, Minchin said, you know, to the common man, give it to them and give it to them good. In other words, let them get what they deserve. They're not smart enough to self-govern, self-police, um, keep the kind of the uh, the train on the track. And um, the interesting part to me, the most interesting part of Jefferson is he was educated, highly educated. Uh, the era of enlightenment had such a profound impact on how he saw the world, but he believed in the commoner. Now, now, Jackson was a commoner. I mean, Jackson was self-taught, self-educated, uh, far more rambunctious and, um, and irreverent than Jefferson was. But Jefferson still, despite these, these qualities and qualifications that he had, I mean, he would have been an elite aristocrat in today's modern society, but, but he still didn't find government very appealing or attractive. Uh, he felt government would eventually... Um, just inhibit the right of the common man. And what have we seen? Um, I think the greatest compliment ever paid to, in politics is when Jefferson referred to Hamilton as a worthy foe. I mean, if Jefferson refers to you as a worthy foe, that is high praise. I mean, that is quite the high praise. And I've always, as I've read and tried to better understand the, the Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian period in America, um, I think Jefferson got the best of Hamilton. 
in the early days because I think the Constitution was the binding document. And I think the Constitution was there. We've talked about it uh, to protect people from its government, not the government from its people. Um, Hamilton kind of, I don't say had an inverted theory on, um, on the Constitution, but he did believe in um, a more controlling central planner, a bigger government. Um, if Jefferson were on the court today, there's no question how he rules. If Hamilton's on the court today, um, it would be interesting to watch him play political jiu-jitsu with what the Constitution says, but him wanting the federal government to be in charge of more and more. And I got to believe that Hamilton would have probably wanted the federal government to be in charge of whether a woman can have an abortion or not. We'd have federal abortion law, um, you know, one size fits all kind of thing. I don't think he'd be, I don't think he would neglect the right of the states. I don't think Hamilton ever completely neglected the right of the states, but it is such a consequential debate and such a, um, I, I don't know, Rev, a revisiting of history. When Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's not a Friday morning in Washington. I mean, there's a, an enormous amount of history that led to that moment and many, many important Americans who contributed to that moment in time. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. So let me ask you a question. We've established, or I think we've established, that on the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll, there are three acts, right? Mm-hmm. I'm an Elvis. Yep. The Stones. Yep. The Beatles. Agree. I mean, we've established that that is Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln. Now that Roosevelt guy ended up up there, we don't know. <laughs> except he was president when they commissioned um, the exactly uh, how <laughs> the, the honor. So, so is Fleetwood Mac worthy of consideration? I didn't say are they the fourth, um, you know, Mount Rushmore, but are they worthy of any debate at all for Mount Rushmore? Yeah, no. Okay, is Tom Petty worthy of any debate at all? No. Is Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac in the same neighborhood of all-time great rock and roll bands. Yes. Okay. I agree with that. I mean, I, they're great rock and roll bands, mm-hmm. but probably not to the level of being considered um, the fourth Mount Rushmore of all time 
in rock and roll. We, we've, we agree the Beatles, the Stones, and Elvis are up there without question. Um, we agree that Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac are great, great rock and roll bands. That's, um, that's right. And But we don't. We, we kind of agree they don't. Uh, okay, who? I mean, g- give me an example of someone who does rise to the level of being considered. Um, we can make a debate. You could have a legitimate argument. I've yeah, got a leg this, to stand on. It's a little bit like Brett Favre. This is subjective. You know, I, I would never argue Favre as the greatest quarterback ever, but I wouldn't be embarrassed to debate it. You know what I mean? I mean, I think Brady's separated himself with the most recent uh, world championship in Tampa, but you, you wouldn't say, do what? I mean, you say, okay. I mean, he's not, I don't think he's the greatest ever, but I mean, he's got more games played and more touchdown plays, more, you know. Um, so, so what is the other band or who are the other bands or, or individual acts that you think need to be considered? Zeppelin. Yeah, Zeppelin. Oh, okay, my there you go. Choice. That's that's a yeah. notch above. No question. But it's not a sure thing. No. I mean, it's not, no, you, you know, there's no question Led Zeppelin. No, it's, it's subjective, obviously. Uh, it, it, are the Beatles subjective? If you want to make so. a fool of yourself. Right. Is the Stones subjective? If you want to make a fool of yourself. Is Elvis subjective? If you want to make a fool of yourself. Um, so Zeppelin would be um, Grateful Dead? Mm. Probably not. I agree no. with I mean, I don't think so. I mean, they, they would be in that same category of Fleetwood Mac and tom petty um okay here you go you ready springsteen no okay um he's in the same category with petty and fleetwood mac and all the others yeah huh okay uh tom petty sold his collection for 60 million springsteen <laughs> sold his for 545 million so apparently sony records doesn't think that springsteen <laughs> oh, in the same okay. category yeah, um, you're defending your guy a prince <laughs> yeah i mean mm? is prince in the same category with springsteen is Prince and Springsteen a half notch above Petty and Fleetwood Mac? Well, you just want. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think it's. I mean, we're going to do a show Friday since we're we're we, we don't know exactly we're what we're here. doing. No, we don't know exactly. I love these debates because there is no answer. I mean, everything is is in the abstract. I mean, there is no right answer or wrong answer. Um, I could easily argue that Petty belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What are you going to kill me if I say that? I mean, it's it's th- these arguments are completely and totally discretionary you can argue whatever you choose to argue there's no way you'll ever convince me that paul mccartney doesn't sing like a girl <laughs> but he's a beetle right. right he's a beetle <laughs> and so, he wrote so he some gets of those a bit iconic of a, songs in the history of the world no question about it and this, that's why i don't stop with he's a dude that sings like a girl i mean he's done all these other Listen crazy things that have led to um rock and roll um stardom and rock and roll you know just fame i mean he's all no question he's an all-time great um michael jackson yep mm. you think he's in that be. category yeah, he's, okay he, yeah. uh-huh. is he in yep. the category with led zeppelin pretty close bob dylan yeah now you can't just because you don't get him i mean you can't say you you you, you never give and here's your problem and no, you got no, a big hang up and i'm problem. gonna publicly expose you your your big hang up is with smart guys in rock and roll you have a big well problem. no because part of my Part of my criteria is commercial success. success. Okay. Okay. And Dylan didn't have great commercial success. No, as Springsteen a Springsteen hadn't had great commercial success. I'll tell you the biggest compliment I give Tom Petty. You ready? My wife is not a connoisseur of music. I mean, she likes music, and uh, she's forced to listen to more Springsteen and Dylan than she wants to. But um, we're going to the uh, we're leaving the beach, going to Charleston one day. She and I, and um, I had it on Tom Petty radio. It was like 30-day, you know how you get these 30-day subscriptions? You don't have to pay for it. Um, so you get the 30-day trial offer, yeah. and I got it on Tom Petty Radio. And a song comes on, another song, another song. We don't talk to one another. We may marry long enough. We don't even talk anymore. So um, we get 20 miles down the road, third or four songs. She looks to me and says, he sang all those songs? 
And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's her giving an ultimate compliment because she doesn't get in the weeds with uh, one band or another or who's the all-time greatest and who's not the uh, – Frank Sinatra. Is Frank Sinatra – I mean, but he's not a rock and roller, right? Right. I mean, he's um he's unquestionably, uh, you know, kind of the iconic brand or figure in American music and folklore, but he's not a rock and roll. The reason we're going – we're teasing our audience – we um we have the go ahead. Rev doesn't let me do this by myself anymore. He makes sure we get confirmation, purchase well, orders, we, we do and all these other do, sorts know, we, of things. We do want to um, deliver what we. Well, promise. I mean, I I I really I I didn't get it landed on the aircraft carrier the first time we did this. Um, I I said some things without confirming with other sources, and um and we had kind of a you know what on our hands. It worked out. It just took a, took a little while to. It took a while to get deliver. there, and there was no malice. You know that. I mean, oh, there, there was no malicious intent at all to make sure we got everything squared away, but we did. So this Friday, we don't know exactly what we're doing yet because the chronic whiner says it's going to take too long to do it the way I want to do it, but I'm sure we'll do it the way he wants to do it. But we're going Things to do a, a show. Lot of work. We're going to do a show where we have extensive giveaways. Pepsi of Florence, our Takes Mondays to Make Friday sponsor, has agreed to let us have a little fun with you, our listeners, as we head into the July 4th weekend and the week we will not be um, on the air uh, live. We'll have some the best we could do of. And Rev's a big music fan. We think Freehold's a big new Got to be from Freehold. Um, and, and I am as well. So we're in the early stages. It's only Tuesday. We're in the early stages of developing a plan for Friday. But we're going to have some pretty cool prizes to give away to you, our listeners, as we say farewell for the week of the four so that's why we play fleetwood mac that's why i've initiated or really instigated um this debate with no answers because there is no right answer right i could easily but it's fun to talk about sure it's and fun debate to, and and you know music brings a smile to people's face and with gas five dollars a gallon and the economy appearing to be kind of headed to a softer place um there's just a lot of confusion political disgruntlement out there we believe that we owe you a smile on friday and we're going to work with Pepsi of Florence to make sure we deliver as planned. So we've talked about uh, these artists, and we compared, you know, Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so if I throw a couple artists out there, where do they fall in this pecking order? Because they're definitely outside of rock and roll. Let's right. say Bee Gees. Oh, they're they're there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah. I mean, without question. Um, now they look like they had rickets. Um, <laughs> they look like they missed too many meals. Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, it, no question about it. I mean, you know, they they belong. They had and wrote here, here a lot we of go. Hits. They are in the exa- if 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 I believe that Zeppelin and Springsteen are a half and Dylan, they they belong in that same category without okay. question. I'm not as big a fan of the BGS as I am Dylan, Springsteen, sure. and, and, and Zeppelin. And, but but I got to give them credit where credit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think they were all knighted, weren't they? I mean, Sir this and Sir Robin and Sir. Um, if might, I'm not mistaken, I think every one of those were, were knighted and that's a big deal over there. Um, we whooped them in the war, but we've, we've kind of reconciled to become friendly with, with Great Britain. ABBA. No, not there. Um, I would have them in the same category that Fleetwood Mac and, and Tom Petty. And that's rare air. I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty good company to keep. Um, I'll ask you a question. Chicago. Ooh. They're, they're right. Yeah, I, mean, I, I put yeah. them right with the I mean, on the level we're talking about. They're, they're a legendary band. Absolutely. But they, 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 and, you know, I think you go from being good to great, great to uh, legendary, legendary to iconic. 
And I think the Beatles are iconic. Um, Elvis is iconic. Elvis was the, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it, there's something different after watching the movie. And I know Superman don't fly. I get that. But that dude was different. I mean, I'm telling you, there was something supernatural about what happened to him when he got on that stage. Um, the, the, but, but it's so sad um, what happened to his life. You know, here, here's an interesting point. What if Elvis had lived as long as Mick Jagger and Keith Richards? You know, Elvis died at 42 years old. Some people say he's still alive. Well, I don't buy that. I, I mean, he took a lot of pills, oh, man. man. If he's alive, he's a, <laughs> the pill-taking his living man that's ever walked the face of the planet. But the tragedy in Elvis was how many people needed him on that stage to live. Yeah, no matter what. And no matter what. I mean, you got to get that guy on that stage. I mean, some way, somehow, that there's 100 people whose entire livelihoods depend on that guy getting on that stage and singing whatever it is he chooses to sing. And late in life, I mean, there's an abuse element here. Late in life, I don't know if he knew he's on stage or not, but but he was, you know, they, they needed him on stage because there's house payments to be made and, uh, you know, uh, just a lifestyle to maintain. It's sad, but it really and truly is um, sad if you, you know, buy the creative liberties that – this company, and, and you said something a second ago, or you told me yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, one of the owners of our station was an executive producer on the movie, mm-hmm. um, Bruce Mittman's son, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. I think we divulged that, yeah. um, Andrew Mittman was an executive so. producer on the movie, he was, because I went back and looked after you told me that over the weekend, I said, let me see if that's true or not, <laughs> and it was, Andrew Mittman is listed amongst the credentialed in being an executive producer and um, in a movie that surpassed... Um, Top Good this week as the the leading seller or the the the, the leading grossing movie of the yeah, weekend. Andrew has uh, yeah he's been involved in several different hit movies in the well, last several years. Well, he would know years. if Elvis is dead or not. It, yeah, probably. I mean, so. would be. We could go to one of the um one of the verifiable sources to find out if indeed Elvis is dead or not. Beach Boys. Yeah, no question. They're they're in the same category with Zeppelin or Springsteen or Dill. Yeah, no question about it. It would be interesting to put a staircase like uh, yeah. stairway to heaven. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, we got the Eagles, the Beatles, uh, the Eagles. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. Well, you're not a Southerner. I mean, uh, what he, what he well, I mean, shake he, his head? He's kind of shook his head like, oh, no. Oh, you kidding me? I didn't even know the Eagles were from the South. They're not from the South, but they wrote the soundtrack of the South. You don't know that. Skinner you, did. You fun. arrogant Northeasterners. I mean, <laughs> y'all, y'all believe Listen if something didn't come from there, it's no good. Um, the, yeah, the, the Eagles, see, the Eagles Beach Boys. Are, to me, right on the edge of Mount Rushmore. I mean, they could just about be there. That They would be. I, I'll agree with that. Uh, absolutely. Um, but Dylan is for me, and Springsteen is for me. Yeah. I mean, there are four or five acts. That, Zeppelin is for me. I mean, it, in all honesty, you could argue Zeppelin as much as you could some of the other bands. They just yeah. didn't have the commercial. Well, I think they did. Commercial success. Um, they were not as mainstream. How about that? They weren't as mainstream as some of the acts. Um, let's go to the phone. Roger and Coward. Hello, Roger. Well, good morning, fellas. Just got one quick question for you. Maybe you can answer it. Why in the world? Now, I could question Dylan a little bit, too. Uh, he can't sing much. Um, <laughs> or at all. You know, it really, he, he, really, he can't sing. <laughs> uh, but um, the thing about uh, why is Janis Joplin an icon all she ever did was holler she has no talent at all she couldn't sing why is she an icon ah that's interesting roger i, I, I can't i know chris christopherson said the first time he heard thank you for the call the first time he heard 
Janis Joplin sing Me and Bobby McGee, he knew he'd have to, he'd never have to work a real job again for as long as he lived. I mean, Christopherson was a, uh, a noted songwriter. Uh, Chris Christopherson was one of the most interesting people in music. Road scholar, yeah, decorated um, Navy pilot, um, or might have been Army pilot. Anyway, decorated military pilot. Let me say that. I don't want to get wrong. Um, road scholar, uh, j- just a lot of accomplishments in his life. Um, but songwriting, he wrote Me and Bobby McGee, and Janis Joplin sang Me and Bobby McGee, and he said he heard the demo, and he knew right away, instantaneously, that he was never going to have to. Woodstock, counterculture, drugs. I mean, the story kind of gets larger than life with Janis Joplin is what I would argue. I mean, would you would you disagree with that? No, of course. I mean, when you think of the counterculture age and Woodstock and all these other sorts of things, um, Joplin kind of played into some of that yeah, but sort of narrative. It's more than just the music and songs. It is, it, it's kind of an era that you, sure. you kind of tie her to. And because of that, there's influence. You remember her, you know, all these years later. How much different is the public's opinion of Fleetwood Mac is Stevie Nicks as, as iconic as she is? I mean, I think you would agree, Stevie Nicks. I mean, I joke around with the Rev and say, um, Stevie Nicks or Olivia Newton-John. And he's afraid of his wife, so he says Olivia Newton-John, because that's kind of the safe bet. I've just been an Olivia fan but, ever since. But you would agree ever. that Steve, okay, Stevie Nicks Stevie? and Janice Joplin, I mean, they, they kind of reek of, all of, of rock and roll, right? I mean, when you think of oh, rock yeah. and roll and women in rock and roll, Absolutely. and you think of Stevie Nicks and Janice Joplin, um, I, I get it. I mean, you know, Janis Joplin's vocals were a bit different, uh, but Stevie Nicks's is is a little bit different. Uh, th- this this is something we hope to have a little fun with uh, this coming Friday. Somebody on the phone? Yep, Dan in Florence. Hello, Dan. Yes, hi. Uh, good good to talk to you, Ken. Um, just put a little different maybe perspective on this. Uh, I'm I'm 74 years old. Okay, and I'm I'm a, I'm a, a white guy <laughs> and uh but when i grew up most of my friends i grew up in charlotte most of my friends and i all we listened to was what we call soul music i'm talking about the temptations the tams mm. uh uh, uh, uh the, uh, the isley brothers um uh and the the spin that i put on that i mean that's all we listen to that's all our radios were tuned to that it's what we danced to and now, fast forward to our generation now, what do all the young white kids listen to now? Black music. It's just a way, 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 way different form of black music. And I, I, I'm not trying to make this a black or white thing at all. I'm just making a social you know, a, a comment on kind of the, the way things change, but they remain the same. Um, and uh, but if you talk to a bunch of old white guys in my age group, a lot of them will tell you they listen to soul music. Mm-hmm. That's what they listen to. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of these kids now, uh, these young kids, that's what they listen to. But it ain't soul music. It's I'm not really sure what it is, but it's it's mostly black music. So I just put it. I thought I'd throw that in there, and maybe somebody else would like to make a comment on it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know the the takeaway for the movie. Um, Elvis, and I'd encourage anybody that's interested in music to go see the movie. The two takeaways, uh, uh, the two highlights are, to me, um, they abuse the guy. It'd be like a Major League Baseball pitcher being asked to pitch every game. I mean, so, you know, give him a shot in his arm. You know, give him a drink of liquor. I mean, just put it, he's got to go out there some way, somehow. And that was kind of the story of Elvis. The other thing is, and we'd read about this and we heard about it, but the impact the African-American community had on his music. Um, 
I, I, I joke around and say he was a black white guy. You know, you, you got to be careful saying these sorts of things, but I think we're friendly enough with one another. We have enough history with one another. I can say that. Um, he, he basically learned his craft and was most comfortable in his craft around, you know, blacks. Uh, so some of the blues music, some of the, um, I don't know, the, the, the rockabilly. I mean, it wasn't even called rockabilly in the day. Some of the R&B. I mean, Elvis, that had a big impact or impression on him. Um, and I've read from, from other, you know, B.B. Uh, King called Elvis a supernatural talent. I mean, B.B. King said the first time I saw that boy sing that music, I knew something was different. There, there's a scene in the movie, and you got to remember what time you're in. There's a scene in the movie where one of the promoters hear a song on the radio. That's All Right, Mama. I mean, that was Elvis's first song at Sam Phillips with Sun Records. And one of the promoters says, I can't, I can't play a black guy on the radio. I mean, we can't play a, a black guy singing on the radio. I mean, and, and, wow. the, and the guy says, that ain't a black guy. And he looks and he says, that's a white boy. <laughs> he says, that's a white boy singing that music. And, you know, because there are a lot of, mm. uh, I mean, there are a lot of racial issues that, that were during the last, I think Elvis was in 56 or 7 when he recorded his first song. So, I mean, you know, that, that was a very racially polarizing era and age. Um, and, and to be honest, Elvis, I mean, everything I've ever read, he was very, very much at home in the African-American community, probably more at home than he was in some of the negotiation with RCA records and all. But, but the story, the narrative is, and I would imagine, Rev, in a weird way, Michael Jackson was similar to that. How many people lived off the money he made? You know, and, and we know the story of Michael Jackson, just tragic. I mean, he had some so some kind of weird compulses. Um, some may have, may not have been criminal. I don't know. Um, but but a lot of people lived off his abilities. You know, those tours and those concerts he gave, uh, getting a million dollars a night. Um, Elvis signed a deal at the International Hotel, getting a million dollars a night. I mean, that was unheard of at the time. There's no way you could uh, make that sort of money, you know, performing. But how many people depended on him to do and i do think there's some similarities with with michael jackson and elvis as they were well can we say generational once in a lifetime performers but so many people needed them doing their thing or their lives fundamentally changed. i'm not talking about a little bit i'm talking about fundamentally changed if that guy wasn't on that stage doing what it is the two of them did so well take a break right Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. RC in Florence. Good morning, RC. You are on the air. Well, good morning. I, I enjoyed the program, but I, I'd like to add Tina Turner to that list. Yeah, that, there there's go. a good one. The, the ageless Tina Turner. She looks to, but I've not seen her recently. Thank you, RC. Appreciate that. We've not seen. Have you seen uh, any pictures of Tina Turner not recently? In a while. I mean, she's 165 years old. <laughs> So it's time you age. At some point in time, age does begin to take a toll. But, I mean, yeah, for a long time, she was ageless. I mean, she looked, you know, in her, what, 60s, kind of like she looked or like you would expect a female to look in their, in their 30s. Uh, the biggest mistake you could make in the late 50s is carry a girl to an Elvis concert. <laughs> really? Yeah, because, I mean, you're, you're by yourself. I mean, the second <laughs> he starts doing his thing, I mean, you know, the female's like, wow, okay, and you're left sitting there. Uh, they're on the front of the stage acting foolish and stupid. I guess the the counter strategy would be she ain't going on with him. She got to take all that off on somebody. So uh, that that may have been the uh, <laughs> kind of kind of the uh, the, the secret 
that the dudes had when they carried their woman or their girl. Let me say that. Their girl to an Elvis concert. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Boudreaux. Uh, good morning. There's two callers ago talked about the African-American uh, influence on uh, uh, on his generation. Mentioned Elvis. You know, uh, this isn't rock and roll, but uh, Hank Williams was heavily influenced by, uh, I think it was Rufus Payne, a, a blues singer. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of, uh, I think, has been the thing as long as music's been in this country. But I wanted to throw a, a name out I hadn't heard, and I just tuned in about 20 minutes ago. But how about Skinner? There you uh, go. Southern Dr. rock and roll. Got to be mentioned. Yeah. yeah. That, that's it. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. Cato would be proud because mm-hmm. uh, he was such a Leonard Skinner fan. Um, Skinner, uh, can we argue this? Was Skinner a bit niche? I mean, it was Southern well, rock and roll. Because it was Southern, I think so. It was, yeah. But they were iconic. Sure. I mean, Sweet Home Alabama, everybody knows that song. I don't care if you're from Freehold or not. I mean, everybody knows. Free Bird. Yeah, Free Bird would be another song that everybody what do you, what do you, I said Skinner before. Did you really? Yeah. yeah what are you trying to make, you know, I mean, he's trying to make up for Southerners. Um, <laughs> the, the Northern aggressive, um, just, just the position of default is to believe Southerners aren't quite as smart. Uh, when I ran for office and opened my mouth, I knew that some of the Northerners along the coast deducted about 20 or 30 IQ points. I didn't care as long as they voted for me. You can deduct however many IQ points you choose. Um, that there's a quota of y'all and ain't. And if you exceed that quota, then you begin to get demerits, intellectual demerits. So I'd say y'all, it ain't a lot. And I got to the point I think I'd diminished my standing with some of the um, some of the smart Northerners who have invaded the South Carolina coast. That's right, I said invaded the South Carolina coast. <laughs> I think a lot of these artists we're talking about, if you think about it, they were trailblazers and they were very unique in what they did. They They kind of brought something new to the table, no matter what the genre is. And then they had some staying power. I mean, they really, you know, developed a, you know, a strong following. They sold records, filled arenas, whatever it was. And then some of them, of course, we've talked about, you know, McCartney still tours. We talked about the Rolling Stones still touring. And, uh, and of course, Elvis, unfortunately, died Man, young. What, what would Elvis be doing today? Who is the oldest performer still touring? Is it Willie? I mean, is Willie Nelson the oldest performer? I mean, Willie's in his 80s. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Who are who is the oldest performer today? Older. Still, um, still touring. Uh, there aren't many human beings older than Willie, and Willie's still smoking weed and playing music. Uh, <laughs> Willie Nelson is. If I were a um, in that order, an advocate for legalizing marijuana, I'd use Willie as my case study. <laughs> and killed him. <laughs> if it hadn't killed him, it won't kill you. That would be my um, campaign slogan. Let's go to the phone. Joel in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Hello, Joel. Hey, how you doing there? Hey, Joel. Hey, this is Joel and Sumter. I just had to add uh, two groups that you hadn't mentioned yet, and I'm 74, and this is my favorite groups, and that's Meatloaf and Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Two two others. Um, I, I would hold Meatloaf in higher regard than Dr. Hook. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Yep. Um, but Meatloaf wasn't a band, was it? I mean, it was an individual artist. He had a backup band. I mean, obviously, he had a, a backup band. Weighed as much as a band <laughs> in some of his days. Um, didn't he recently pass recently away? Recently died. Sure yeah. did. And um, had some of the iconic rock and roll. Were the, would you call them ballads? Two out of three ain't bad. And I mean, bad out of hell ain't a, ain't a ballad. But I mean, he had some of these iconic um, rock and roll love songs. And um, 
Paradise by the Dashboard Light. There you go. A, That's the other one I was thinking about. Yep. Um, and the reason we're – this is a tease, guys, because we're going to do something like this. We don't know exactly what yet because Rev has such a demanding schedule and he can't find time to do anything that I want to do. Um, but but I'm hoping that, that he'll graciously – I bribed him with food. I texted him yesterday and said, hey, man, I got some food. I'm taking it to the beach this weekend. I'm going to have some extra. You want some? Yeah, of course I do. Um, <laughs> I he said, doesn't know you. that. Thank but you very much. Th- th- that, that was not done out of kindness. Oh, I mean, That was very manipulative when, when I did that. That way, when I start leaning on you about I, what we need to get done, you know, I knew that. Well, I mean, the guy gave me some food. <laughs> so I, I guess we'll have to figure out a way to. You think to, I've learned nothing in these last 10 years? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's up to something. You need to forget about half of what, you, <laughs> of what you've learned. Hey, 843-661-0937 is our number. We, um, we stammered away from the orthodoxies of conservative political radio. We'll kind of get back uh, in bounds here for a quick second. Um, There's a video out there of Anna Navarro, and she's basically arguing. She's a former Bush um, agent, worked with the Bushes, I think Jeb in Florida, and may have worked for the Jeb uh, presidential campaign. How'd that work out, Anna? Uh, But anyway, she is arguing. We had somebody calling earlier about personal responsibility, you know, the obligation you have to yourself and and your priorities and the way you think things should be done. but a, And I, you would expect a Democrat operative or activist to say something like this, but Navarro is basically arguing that the states that ban abortion need to accept responsibility for that woman not being allowed to have that abortion, and these poor, disabled, abused kids, um, underprivileged, impoverished, that's society's responsibility, not the, the mother and father. That's a bizarre argument for a Republican to make and makes me question whether or not that person is she, indeed she's a, Republican? a Republican. Well, she professes to be. Hmm. Let's go to Anna Navarro. And that was crazy. How, but how stupid is she? Come on. Well, let me tell but there's, there's, that also brings up another point, yeah. which is that Arkansas and so many of the states that have trigger laws ready and that are banning the, a, a person, a family's choice, a woman's choice, lowest, also yeah. have the worst social services yeah. Yeah. Yes. in America. Always. Yes. And so if you are, and, and look, this is a difficult conversation, yeah. and I know some people feel that we shouldn't be talking about social services, we shouldn't be talking about... Um, special needs families, I, that we shouldn't be talking about adoption and foster care and those special services that are needed in this same conversation, I disagree. Mm-hmm. Because I think it is hypocritical and wrong to ban a family from making their own choice of what's best for them. Doesn't mean that you don't love your special needs um, family members, that you don't adore them and they are part of the family, but that we know firsthand experience just how difficult it is to beg and plead for years sometimes to be able to get some help. So if they're going to ban a, a family's choice, there's going to be more poor kids. Yeah. There's oh, going to be more kids in adoption. There's going to be more kids in foster care. There's going to be more abused kids. Right. There's going to be a, a lot of other things, and those hypocritical states need to step up and provide the service. Well, and this isn't going to... We, we- so kill them. Hmm. Kill them. Kill them before they're born. If there's a chance they'll be poor, kill them. If there's a chance they'll be disabled, kill them. If there's a chance they'll be abused, kill them. Of course. I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, nobody wants um, to take a chance that a kid may be poor or not or disabled or not, or abused or not, or, or, or face certain challenges. No, just kill them. I mean, that's the obvious choice. I mean, that's exactly where Republicans should land. That, the absurdity of that is embarrassing and dangerous and scary. And, and, and this lady worked for someone who ran 
in the Republican Party for president and was governor of a southern state. Um, she's never been a Republican. She's been an operative. She's been a hack. She's figured out a party that would embrace her as an employee. And that's what we've really, that goes back to the Elvis inverse theory or the inverse Elvis theory. The, the, the Elvis theory is for everybody to enjoy their livelihood, their status, their, their earnings, this guy has to get on that stage. The inverse Elvis theory is for everybody to enjoy their livelihood, their, 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 their celebrations of success. This guy can't be there. That there's an inversion here. Elvis and Trump are, are uniquely um, the same in that regard. Life can't exist without that guy on that stage. Life can't exist if that guy is president. And that's why when he placed his hand on that Bible in 16, people like Navarro said, it can't happen again because I'll be exposed. I mean, the life that I've created, the dependency on government jobs and government funding that I've created goes away. But it's the, that's one of the saddest, most extremes, most absurd things I've ever had a human being say over the airwaves. I mean, I've said some crazy things. I've said some things I regret. I've said some things I wish I could have back. But, but I, wow. I mean, wow. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's godless. And this woman worked for what we perceive to be the front runner for the Republican nomination president of the United States. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Van Halen's here on the bumper music. Yeah, that, that would say, be a um, put them up there. That would be one of the bands that um, I think you would agree with me here. Van Halen was the band. If Garth was the uh, the act that bridged country and pop, then Van Halen was the band that bridged rock, rock and, and roll to pop. Yeah, is that fair to say? I go. With I mean, that. Van, Van Halen, an iconic, no question about it. What what a lot of people don't know, Van Halen was a formally trained um, team of musicians. Um, the brothers were formally trained. David Lee Roth was formally trained. Uh, and by, in other words, I mean, they had taken music classes and um, piano classes and guitar. I mean, they, they were formally and classically trained in, in music. Um, I don't know that Dylan was. I don't know that Elvis nor Michael Jackson were. You know, but when I think of exceptional talent. I'm pretty talent, sure Dylan wasn't. Well, I mean, let's, let's do this, and then we'll put a bow on it. Because um, Friday, we're going to try to get into this. I mean, we're going to have some gift certificates. We're going to have a lot of fun. Um, gas is five bucks a gallon. Everybody's mad about, you know, the state of affairs in America. Um, we're going to do our little part in sending you off on a positive note. So Friday morning, I mean, it'll be it'll be business as usual tomorrow, uh, ranting and raving about politics. It'll be business as usual Thursday. And then Friday, we're going to dedicate a good bit of the show to having some fun. Pepsi to Florence has agreed to um, uh, fund some of these um, gift certificates that we're in pursuit of, hot pursuit of the gift cards. And uh, once we get those in our hands, um, but we don't know what we're going to do. Remember last year, or maybe the year before, I don't know if we did it last year. The year before we had musical montages and you had to name the songs. We had six or seven or eight songs. We'd play snippets of each of those songs. You'd had to name all of those songs. Uh, we're going to do something similar to that. Maybe um, uh, some questions we ask of our listeners, maybe a series of questions. You know, we give the, um, the takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question. We may have a series of five questions and you got to answer all five simultaneously, not simultaneously. I'm in sequence. You got to, you know, I get that one to get to the second one, get the second to get the third. And they get a little bit harder as we progress. Uh, but anyway, we're working on exactly what we're going to do, but we're going to have some fun on Friday and we expect music to be involved in some way, shape or form. Let's go to the phone. Yeah, see, on the line is Johnny in Hartsville. Hello, Johnny. 
hey, um, um, I'm surprised we haven't heard anything about Jimmy Hendrix yet. Ah, there you go. Didn't live long enough, did he, Johnny? Yeah, but boy, it was uh, it was massive while he was here. And he's influential even today. I mean, a lot of right. people try to mimic his guitar style and and the way he I mean, played. He's legendary, no question no about, doubt it. about no, it. No question. Buddy Holly is somebody that comes to mind. You know, the day oh, the music gosh, died. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, kind of, yeah. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting that people have, uh, and nobody's opinion is better than anybody else's. Um, Buddy Holly died at what, like twenty-two years old or some. I mean, he was much right. younger than Elvis. I mean, Elvis died young at 42, but I think Buddy Holly, uh, what would Buddy Holly's impact have been had he not died um, on the plane? With, I think Waylon Jennings was scheduled to be on that plane, and but Buddy Holly had laundry to do and needed to get to the city uh, before, and I think Waylon gave up his seat for to allow Buddy Holly to fly, and um, Don McLean wrote a song about it the mm-hmm. day. Uh, the music died. I've asked this question to our listeners. I know I did it on Facebook. If you were on death row and scheduled to be put to death, what is the last song you'd want to hear before you met your maker? I mean, we hear the last meal. You know, some people want pizza. Some people want fish and cheeseburgers. And, and some people want gourmet, you know, cuisine. What is the last song you'd want to hear before you left and met your maker? Uh, to me, it's Thunder Road. I mean, I, that, that's, I mean, it's hard to say what my favorite song of all time is, but, um, it's kind of, it's, it's a song that puts you at ease and I can imagine being on death row about to be executed. Anything that helps put you at ease would probably be uh, a little bit, but what you got any idea Rev? what was the last yeah. song before you, um, fly off into eternity? What, what is the last song you don't want to hear as an inhabitor mm. of the planet earth? Well, I'm going to have to think about that. Okay. Well, think about it and we'll, um. I don't but, but, know. And, and once again, music um, music doesn't remind us. To me, it doesn't remind us of where we are. It reminds us of where we've been. You know, I, I think about this song and then that song. And, man, I was in the eighth grade. I was. I remember the, the swimming pool. I remember, you know, the, the girlfriend or the That's boyfriend. That's a great thing about music. Yeah, I remember this car. I can, I mean, and as a kid. Not only the songwriter and producer has those memories, but everyone who hears it and likes it has a memory. And that is a contribution to mankind. You're right. You know, McCartney, you said someone asked him the question, uh, when you wrote yesterday or when you wrote whatever it is, he and John Lennon wrote um, together, did you ever imagine? Of course they didn't. I mean, nobody imagines that song will be impactful 50 years later uh, when when a man proposes to a woman, you know, or a woman has a kid. And there's, there's, you know, these, I've got a summer. I don't remember what summer it was, but I had a buddy of mine whose father had a scout and we rode around in that scout and he had a pioneer cassette player and we had these Jensen tracks, two speakers. I mean, I can remember, I can smell that. I mean, I, I can, I can smell the dirt on the dirt road. Um, I ain't just saying I can smell the natural light. Um, I was holding it for him. I never drank it. I was holding it for some, uh, some of the others who were a little bit older and more of course. Uh, rambunctious yes, of course. than I, cause I was a Hamiltonian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a law and order, big government kind of guy. Right. Take a break back in a minute. 